0: Welcome to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here, in each episode of the Director's Club we take a look at a filmmaker's body of work. their breakout films, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films may come up when you look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. A journey that takes us to a very unique filmmaker in the world of documentaries, Frederick Wiseman. Hello everyone, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us for this excursion on the work of Wiseman is a special guest who's joined us for discussions on John Ford and Terrence Malick, among others. He is a co-organizer of the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group and noted Judge Priest enthusiast, <laughs> Peter Richards. Welcome, Pete.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Uh, judge Priest has uh, put me on parole, so I'm here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we may get to a judge on this one that uh, we'll reconsider, but we're so glad to have you
1: back. Exactly. Thanks, guys. Happy to be back.
2: So Frederick Wiseman might be the least known of the directors we've covered. But I think we'd we'd like to try to change that because he's pretty extraordinary and pretty unique. He is a documentary filmmaker. In fact, he's my favorite documentary filmmaker. His style, which we're going to spend the podcast delving into, is one that isn't just original in the documentary world but it's really something i've never seen replicated in any kind of film he's most known for people who do know him for the first film we'll discuss in detail uh titicut follies but in fact he's been putting out uh just about a film a year uh, every year since uh, 1967 and so it's got a extraordinarily large body of work. We're not going to go into all of them,
0: but we will uh, delve as far as we can. (laughs) And you can delve pretty far because one of the things that Wiseman is known for is that when he decides to pick a subject, he gets a very, very extensive look in a uh, quite distinct manner. It's often been described as a fly on
2: the wall, although he, he doesn't like that term. But the camera observes. There are no interviews, no narration, no cuts to supplemental footage that isn't there in the place he's filming. And so we get kind of a version of reality. And sometimes when you talk about these kind of documentaries that are known by the term cinema verite, this can be overstated, the, the realism of it, because the truth is no documentary is fully truthful because it all involves what a director chooses to shoot, what he chooses to cut. Uh, the closest to truth is probably something called direct cinema, which we can see on c-span it's basically when the camera films the entirety of something with no edits at all then you have cinema verite itself which adheres to all the rules above except the director can be a participant the director might actually let his presence be known on camera as part of the truth of him or her being there but what frederick Wiseman does his subset of cinema verite is called observational cinema which means you have no directorial presence on screen or in the background but a strong directorial presence in the
0: editing. It should be noted that specifically Frederick Wiseman is his own editor for these films. Also, one of the things that makes him so unique is he makes a style in a documentary form akin to a certain kind of filmmaking called contemplative cinema. Contemplative cinema aims to not tell you, as an audience member, what you're supposed to think, or what you're supposed to expect out of the images that you're watching. And you're meant to get these images and these moments that are on film and uh, and ruminate upon them and consider them on your own terms as to what uh, in connection to what you're watching. And that's part of what Wiseman I feel is trying to do is to not give you these conventional indicators that you need to care about this detail or you need how to see how things turn out in this direction.
1: And I think that's an interesting thing to consider on two levels, bo- both within the subject matter of a given film, as you said, Al, kind of sussing out what the film means to you and what you take from it, but also as a part of the documentary form because I think the most interesting thing about Wiseman films or one of the ways that it influenced the way I even think about documentaries is that you have a great portal into why does he choose to present this thing in the way he presents it and when he presents it because I think he is giving you sort of an idea of what he may think. There's an um, authorial presence to that but it really lets you ponder where is he coming from? What am I supposed to take from this? It, It involves you and invests you in his given films in a way other documentaries, at least for me, don't.
2: And that kind of brings us to the subject matter What is Wiseman Presenting? And uh, basically, I think he has three general types of film. One which is by far the majority of his output is called uh, the institutional film. He does in-depth studies of usually American everyday institutions. So to just bring up a few that we won't be discussing in detail... He has one called Law and Order, no relation to the TV show, dun, dun. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> about life on the police force. He has one called Basic Training, another called Hospital. And each one of these films gives these in-depth observations about these institutions.
0: I think the titles are a really notable way of getting into what Wiseman's trying to do, because as, we, as you relate them... There's two things that you uh, that come to mind. First off, is notice how generic they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're they're generic for a specific reason, in that uh, he's a documentarian who not just like doesn't give you these explicit details, but but act- actively at points removes details that you would expect, such as. People's, uh, such as people's names or their status in an organization. It's meant that you are very much an, an observer and you're meant to suss out these structures and the operations yourself. At the same time, those the names of things like basic training and hospital remind me of a great line that Roger Ebert said about uh, the film Itumama Tambian, mm-hmm. where he said, if you think of the plot of Itumama Tambian, it's one of these stories where... The kids say, after that summer, everything had changed. But it redefines what everything means. (laughs) One of the great values I've found from looking at the films of Wiseman is that he has this dedication of trying as much as possible to encompass as much of that subject as you possibly
2: could. And if an institution isn't a large enough subject, he has kind of a subset of films, maybe five or six, uh, that I refer to as town films, where instead of looking at a particular institution, business, organization, he looks at the entirety of usually a small town, sometimes a different kind of place. We'll, We'll talk about a few of them. But... He films he films those films a little differently. Instead of going in-depth into one area, we get short snippets of various elements throughout the town. So we might see a baker or a post office or some element of the town and then move on to a completely different one. Finally, he has a few films that are more oriented towards performances. So we go backstage in the production of a, a dance or a concert uh, of some kind or a public display, uh, an art museum, that kind of thing. And you not only kind of get a behind the scenes look at these, but you also see quite a bit of the performance or
0: exhibition itself. Yeah and those have a slight a notable dis- different style than his town films as does his institutional films and uh, and we'll be exploring uh examples of each of them as well as uh, moments where one style works its way into another into another style but this is a very odd one for the directors club because sometimes you you have a director's work where you want to where you try to wonder, how do these films connect? But with Wiseman, it's pretty astounding is that there's no wondering. (laughs) His filmmaking is immediately recognizable after 10 minutes of watching his films. And you know it's a Wiseman film, and it's a style that he's maintained for 50-plus years? Very true. Part
2: of his process is to film for about four to six weeks, I assume, though he has, I haven't heard it said outright, that much of the early filming is not used just because people need to get used to a camera being around. Because one thing that's fairly amazing about all of these films is how natural people behave around cameras. And having one there for an extended period of time gives, gives people time to get acclimated. So the filming part is very much him, his own curiosity, his own sense of discovery and looking for interesting things to film in that environment where Wiseman's touch really becomes noticeable though is in the editing because as he's editing literally hundreds of hours of footage He's creating a narrative through his editing decisions. The story of the documentary is presenting itself to him. And so, in many ways, a lot of these films are the same, but a lot of them are so different because each setting provides him with a different narrative idea
0: that he explores through the editing. It comes across to me as a documentary version of Twenty questions, almost, because sometimes you can get why he's editing and presenting the things to us fairly quickly, but sometimes you have to put some uh, put a thinking cap on and go, "What is the message?" and and in fact, in some films, he pulls uh, almost M. Night Shyamalan like twist, where in a succession of scenes, he then illuminates some of the points he was trying to make earlier in the film that lets us watch the film again and keep that perspective in mind
2: so if frederick Wiseman is very much his own uh filmmaker there's also something pretty individualistic about the way he chooses to distribute his films basically until recently uh he's made it pretty difficult to see his works
0: Yeah, a lot of the films, they are clearly presenting a message of looking into a forgotten, undershown aspect of society. There's great value in pointing your documentary lens here and looking at all the things that are happening in this part of the world or in this institution. And so... It's incredibly bizarre that you would say, give a movie with this message and then make it incredibly difficult for people to get that message.
1: Well, and and I think what we'll talk about a bit on this front is Wiseman is an artist and an uncompromising one. And I think that extends to all facets of his uh, career, not just the films themselves, but his control of the distribution even to the point where he will influence how they're presented in a given setting. I know a few of us here have had the experience of being told there will be no intermission during a four-hour film <laughs> because the director has requested that. I, mean, I think his uncompromising spirit gives us some great films. It's also extremely frustrating in their limited availability, and even once you see them, the controlled presentation of them. So like any artist, I think, there's good and bad and you you take you, you take your lack of a bathroom break for a great documentary <laughs> i guess
2: when i first became a fan of wiseman's i of course tried to get a hold of, of as many of these films as possible and i was having some luck at a local video store that specialized in obscure titles but one time i came in and all the wiseman films were just gone and so I asked the clerk what was up, and and he basically said, yeah, we we got a a call from Wiseman's lawyers that uh, they don't want us uh, renting these films out. So I'd just basically like to take this opportunity to... uh, say hello to frederick Wiseman's lawyers who i'm sure are listening and
0: uh <laughs> hopefully we'll stay on the right side of everything
1: <laughs> yeah we we love you we're big fans of the legal profession yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. feel free to send your legal attachments to directors club podcast <laughs> at gmail.com with your uh, airing of grievances we we welcome your input
1: and if I may say just as a personal thank you, I would like to say thanks to uh, Scott and Chrissy who made it possible for me to see the films we're going to talk about today.
2: Right. So the way you can't see them, because there has been some loosening of all of this, some of his more recent films are available on Netflix, not not streaming, but on the video rental service. Uh, he has his own company, and this is pretty much how he's been distributing his films and and making them available it's called zipporah films and you could purchase any wiseman film there and most recently thanks to a a documentary he did on the new york public library system he got interested in libraries and has made his catalog available on the streaming service called canopy there's good news and bad news there is because as we discovered Here in Chicago, uh, our public library system doesn't have access to Canopy, so it's not necessarily fixing the situation for everyone.
1: But it's at least something, and that's more than we had previously. And uh, just a quick unsolicited plug, uh, Canopy with a K is very much worth your time if you can get access to it. uh, Not only are there all of Wiseman's films, but there are a number of great films, but it's worth it for Wiseman alone.
2: So as we start approaching the films themselves, Frederick Wiseman did not start out as a filmmaker. He went to law school and actually spent a good deal of time uh, teaching law and medicine at Boston University. But then once he did find an interest in film, it was first as a producer for a uh, 1963 film from Shirley Clark called The Cool World, which is actually a narrative film about youth gangs in Harlem, and it features uh, actual kids from the streets. But that was somebody else's film, although his imprint uh, certainly was on it. But the Wiseman filmography starts in earnest in 1967 with the infamous Titicut Follies. Titicut Follies is a look inside an insane asylum, the state prison for the criminally insane at Bridgeview, Massachusetts. It is unblinking. It is very difficult to watch. And it ended up being very controversial, which which we'll discuss, but just to clarify why it's called Titicutt Follies, it's because it opens with a kind of a talent show. Among the inmates, uh, where they're doing putting on a uh, little musical number, and the name of their show is Titicut Follies.
0: Yes, the Wiseman effect emerges right away from the first images of eight people singing right to us in the camera of uh, of a merry tune. Some of them are inmates. Some of them are uh, officers from the institution. But you aren't getting a, a view of that until you see one guy who finishes off the performance by making an incredibly terrible joke that everyone seems to, at least my impression, has a little forced laughter at this joke. Then when you, in a later scene, you see him as he's actually one of the head prison guards of this institution, and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, you suddenly become more and more aware of that what this is once the people you had seen singing proceed to strip off their clothes and be led into this stark building.
1: Well, and you mentioned, Al, that one of the participants in the talent show turns out to be a guard, and he really sticks out during the, in, the per- performance intro because um, the look on his face and just the glee he has at being in the spotlight and being under control really um, gives you an insight into his personality. This is someone who relishes... The spotlight relishes being in control, and really, what Titticut Follies is is takes the the terror that having absolute control over someone can give can uh, in with an institution can can provide. It's really stunning to see the way these people are treated, and then when you combine those deprived conditions with the glee of this man, and you basically see that that's the point of Titticut follies.
2: And and that man isn't even the most abusive of the guards, and they know they're on camera but obviously they feel no compunction about uh treating these these people like animals and they are for the most part very sick having um different levels of mental illness and in some cases it's clear that their quote unquote treatment at the institution is simply making matters much much worse
0: i think it's important to note that we may be giving a more dramatic perspective, and this is something that's sort of key on what what makes Wiseman special is that we're the when we're describing, we're actually making it sound more dramatic than it is. If you, people who hear about the controversy of Titticut Follies and come in expecting to see uh, sadistic prison guards brutalizing uh, helpless inmates and uh, uh, and fighting against their plea for mercy, that's not what happens in the film. What happens, or rather, what we see in the movie, is in a way worse. The institution has just made it so that the concerns of the inmates are dismissed, and that it's just that they're just so much cattle that get that gets that gets processed.
1: The the disinterest of the powerful and the impact of the disinterest on other human beings really is startling to see in this film. The closest modern equivalent I could give anyone is perhaps Abu Ghraib. I mean, that's the kind of level we're talking here. We have uh, patients who are consistently nude for really no apparent reason. Um, They're just not treated as a living living human should be now granted these are prisoners but every human has a degree of dignity and th- that dignity is just trampled upon repeatedly and without interruption and to the cut follies. It's well,
2: dismissed yes mm-hmm. well reading about the film i actually found out the reason that they're nude and and it's much much worse and it's because many patients uh suffer from incontinence and to the institution, keeping them nude makes the need for cleaning clothes less and basically just hosing them down when inmates have, uh, have accidents. So this is no way for anybody of any health level to live.
0: <laughs> hmm And it, but it's key that in when we watch it, we're, that's not explained.
2: Right. No, we we, uh,
0: we don't know. Right. The, we don't see the the ostensible reason why they do it. Nor do we see moments where there's glee in the in the guards in impon- treating the inmates this way. What we do see is we see the inmates' level of remaining dignity or lack thereof is just manifested through many different reactions. Some people cover themselves. But some people have long since, like, succumbed to the idea that they're going to be treated in this way. And it becomes more devastating, at least to me, to see that as expression of indifference, uh, succumbing to the system, more than the idea it's a couple of bad actors.
1: Well, yeah, the phrase banality of evil comes to mm-hmm. mind, right? It, it mm-hmm. really is this institutional degradation, which has been in place for so long that it's not even given a second thought at this point. They're just, they're nude because they need to be hosed down. Their rooms are basically empty except for a mattress on the floor because that's what provides the least amount of work for anyone to do. And it's really just a complete negation of human life and human dignity.
2: So as disturbing as all this is, we are, are made witness to one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen on film which is the uh, force feeding of a patient who they're having trouble getting to eat. So they, excuse me for the graphicness uh, of this description. They are basically sticking a tube up up the patient's nose without permission, forcing it, and then force feeding the patient. Making this even more disturbing is a bit of cross-cutting that's going on because we're a cross-cutting to a corpse being prepared for removal. And we realize it's that very same patient.
1: Y- yes. The, the, this sequence is notable for, I think, a couple of reasons. One for just the pure horror you just described, Brad. And if I could just add a couple of things to that. Again, we have a a nude emaciated man who is being held down on a table by attendants who have wrapped towels around his wrists and ankles. So he's being held down and then the tube is inserted up his nose and into his stomach. So that basically they can dump like sort of a shake of some kind through a funnel and it'll be, He'll be force-fed. And as this is done, um, what we have is a doctor we've met before who stands on top of a chair holding a funnel up, as you would for any anything that you'd require gravity to, to yeah. pull down.
0: Like all, it, with all the level of concern of someone changing his oil.
1: Well, exactly. And you, this gentleman is smoking and the ash is hanging right over mm. the, the funnel. So I, I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't ash in the food that this man was given. And then the cross-cutting, Here, it's the same person who has died later. And Wiseman cuts to his body being embalmed. So you see, the first shot you see is a very graphic um, shot of his empty eye socket and cotton being stuffed into it so that he'll have a a proper, I I suppose, presentation for a a funeral or burial. I, I think I've had different reactions to this sequence. The first time I saw it, it's so powerful that you can't help but be overwhelmed by it. And then watching it again for this podcast, I, I was a little frustrated at how direct and how much of a directorial comment. And I think we'll see unusually for Wiseman, very direct and in your face.
2: Right. This is his first film. So he hasn't quite developed the style that he'll use throughout his career. And, and he's said in recent interviews that he very much regrets the the way it's filmed and wouldn't cross cut uh that way again because basically it insinuates that the force feeding episode was the cause of death which may not be true
1: right we have no idea how much time has elapsed what happened any other details the
0: force feeding itself is shown unsparingly and without judgment it's just being held on this for example this tube that just keeps going in to the person's nose, for example. You don't see anything graphically, but it is horrific when you just see how it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And also what's one of the very fascinating things about Titty Cut Follies aside from its stark depictions on the inmates' treatment is upon how much, how many scenes involve performing. There is a party that hap- uh, that happens later in the movie where the uh, inmates are induced towards helping sing along and uh, and this the sing along that happens in the beginning of the movie is apparently an annual event that's run by this guard that we mentioned earlier. And so there are these moments where these people have these expressions of merriment in this in this world that are just that's uh, really interesting to look at.
1: The party you mentioned, which is distinct from the talent show, is the one moment in the film where we perhaps see some empathy from the staff for the patients. There are, uh, in my mind, notably female uh, attendants there who seem to have more compassion for the inmates than the others do. They actually show them encouragement, and whereas the males are more cruel and bothered by having to deal with these people. It really is like maybe the one moment where you're like, Is there some value possible in this environment? Because I think for the most part, we're not showing any positive reinforcement of any type of healing happening or even it being remotely possible.
0: The showcase moment in the film for me is a moment at the three-quarter mark where a person who had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia is arguing his case in front of a panel of doctors. And while he's clearly distressed and has some problems getting the words out, Is also making an incredibly compelling plea that that this environment is hurting me I am NOT getting better by the things that are happening to me in here so you guys say you're helping but that's not what's really happening then he's led away and then the doctor snide dismissal by saying well we clearly need to add his narcotic medication
1: yeah the impression you get is that let's just medicate him in the silence that yeah. that That his compassionate plea for his own health is more of a bother for them than anything else
2: it's the culture of not just this institution but how mental health is treated in general, and the idea of just medicated is something that many doctors are still living
1: by today to me it's just something that like that is a foregone conclusion that they're just trying to keep this as as, um, smooth as possible. And a successful day is a day where no one is upset about anything. And a successful day is not where improvement is noted in a particular patient.
2: Right, but it turns out that it was a very unsuccessful day for the state prison for the criminally insane because when they saw the film that they had given permission for Wiseman to film, it was clear to them how badly they came off. They took it to court, and in fact, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ended up banning the film for a good period of time. And in fact, aside from a very limited release, when it came out, nobody really had a chance to see it until 1991, when the decision was reversed and the
0: film became readily available. That leads to another interesting question on the film, in that were they right to do that now obviously they do not come across well in the movie the institutions i mean however when part of their argument for keeping the film under wraps was that this filmmaker was exploiting these people who were not able to go and give consent and for his own for his own ends and there are some moments in Titty Cut Follies where I can see their point. Most notable is, uh, for me, was a moment where the camera sees a, one of the inmates is on this extended rant, and then it's, the camera pans over to a guy who's standing on his head. And so while this guy's ranting, you see this person's legs hanging upside down. And then as the person who was ranting recedes in the distance... Wiseman is carefully aiming his camera so that the the person ranting is in between the upside down legs of the other patient, which is just to me rubs me the wrong way because it's just like you're using some you're using two people's different problems to make a uh, to make a fun image.
1: Well, I I don't have a problem with that per se. To me, the legal argument made by the Massachusetts authorities eventually, it, it, to me, is a convenient fig leaf to cover their own misdeeds. Is it true that their their official phrase I believe they use is what that Wiseman invaded the privacy of the inmates, and you can see an argument for that, but. He's also invading their misconduct and, and showing that to the world. And for the institution to pretend that they're concerned about the inmates after what we've right. seen mm-hmm. is a ridiculous claim to right. make.
2: In, in the end, it's a whistleblower film. And I think that is its chief value in what it did in the real world. The very particular use of this film for me overrides that. And I think that if kind of you look at the long term result of the reforms that the film helped institute, that Wiseman has provided a service to patients like them. And because of that social value, and because of the shocking level of the imagery, this is the film that has come down to the headline of Frederick Wiseman's career. So when he wins a uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, it's Frederick Wiseman, the director of Titicot Follies. But what's interesting to me is how it really is not a film that is at all indicative of the rest of his career. And I don't think it's anywhere near one of his best.
1: I had that exact experience watching it for the podcast. I had seen it before. And when I went back and looked at my letterbox, I'd given it five stars. And my immediate reaction upon watching it again was that 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 wasn't a five-star film. And the reason was that the first time you see it, you can't help but be overwhelmed by the severity of the images and then consider the wrong that was in part righted by the film. And I think that looms big in your mind when you watch it for the first time. When you see it a second time... The, you know those images are there and you have a greater ability to consider how they're being presented to you and the, in, in the uh, intrusion we mentioned earlier during the force feeding scene um, really stuck out all the more and I, I, you can kind of see the seams and the parts moving for what he's trying to do a little bit more that doesn't in any way diminish the social utility the film had but in terms of uh, watching it as a film it was a bit less of an experience for me the second time as opposed to the first.
0: For me, I think it falls a little short of wh- what Wiseman will do much better later in that it's while it's looking at this institution, it doesn't really delve too deeply into all the different systems that are responsible to getting this institution to work. And then at the same time, there's certain moments like the guy with the upside down legs where I think Wiseman is pushing... Uh, perspective a little more explicitly there's some other um, moments where it seems the main reason he got an image was because it looks like uh the unforgiven video by metallica or (laughs) otherwise looks like a a a noirish or german expressionistic image that where it's beauty comes seems very weird to what he's actually showing and though both of those aspects get turned around in a in a different direction in his next film high school from 1968 about the activities amongst the students staff and teachers of a high school in philadelphia
2: yes an institution of a different sort
0: but (laughs) with
2: some thematic similarities because one of the things we see in high school is also Maybe less clearly, but what could be perceived as an abuse of power from authority figures. The first person we meet, I think, is the vice principal or or someone of a particular role who... Fancies himself quite the tough guy, uh, basically just berating students who are getting in trouble. Uh, really beyond the level I, th- I think uh, it, today we would consider
1: appropriate at the high school level. And, and Another person enjoying their authority. Yeah.
0: Oh well, this right in this case though, this is a ca- I'm seeing where Wiseman took things that may have been observational from his first movie, and it's very explicit that he's the that this person, whether through his own natural inclinations, but what we see of him could almost be uh, as picture-perfect a uh, display of authority run amok as the um, mirrored, sunglass-wearing officer from Cool Hand Luke. Uh, the sense that he's reveling in his ability to push these kids around, uh, I find readily apparent in these scenes. And there are some more subtler examples
2: as well as when a uh, older uh female teacher is uh doing a a fashion show or a modeling class of some kind mm-hmm. and then starts to berate uh the heavier of the students uh just in this gross fat shaming where she she basically goes she's wearing this but she
1: knows she's heavy yeah gender roles are in this film are really surprising and not surprising i guess at the same time because um they really are the stereotypes you might expect from 1968 and they're really enforced they show um men fighting or boys really fighting in gym class over a ball of some kind then you cut to the fashion show you mentioned brad and they're really show that like at this point in american culture that these kids had to overcome what society expected them just based on their gender alone Mm -hmm. it's surprising with today's eyes because at least to some degree we've moved past that we still have a long way to go but it's not surprising in that 1968 was a tough time for some of these kids.
2: Most Wiseman films seem a little timeless. High school is very 1968. Not just in the norms of the way the school is run, but in the moments that we see. like They call for an assembly to talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King.
0: Right, and then there's another assembly uh on the hot controversial topic of birth control
2: oh yes the sex education class from uh another fellow who probably would not be hired in (laughs) today's uh day and age where he uh basically informs the students that the more sexual partners they have the less desirable they will be uh for marriage
1: He goes on to wax uh, philosophic about the different nature of hymen women may have Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how as a gynecologist, he has had the opportunity to explore that. It's every fear you have about a doctor, right, of just being a complete jerk and like providing private information to other people. It, he really is just like... And, and then it's, again, it's another situation where you see someone enjoying the spotlight, right? He's up there having a grand old time. He's very happy with himself. And it's really just this, again, the, this look at authority and just the corrupting nature of it. And it, what drives it home is more of those little moments of him laughing or the smile on his face or the joy you can clearly see him experiencing by relating these terrible stories.
0: That's really interesting, Peter, and something we should keep in mind as we look through Wiseman on the different ways that people in authority use that as a way to present themselves. In this movie, I am torn in two opposite directions because unlike Titty Cut I think he is more explicitly damning the, the institution at hand. Be, then scene after scene after scene, he's showing how the, there's an expectation of how things should go, and, uh, and the re- different reactions of the students all get filed over or, or slammed down or dampened, and stuff that doesn't conform to those structures that the adults are familiar with are continually dismissed. So, there I think it's being more explicit. But from the other side, an aspect comes in from his filmmaking that I really adore, which is when he says high school, he's trying to get the whole high school experience. Over this course of this movie, you're getting the kids in class, you're getting the kids in gym, you're getting the kids just hanging out at lunchtime or spending too much time talking on a phone during a break until the uh, fearsome hall monitor comes <laughs> in to tell them to cut that stuff up. On the teacher side, you get the teachers talk about problematic students or talk about the situations in their, in the, in their lounge. And the administrators are also in are have discussions on policies with the teachers. You have this feeling you are getting a a attempt at a comprehensive look about the different
2: operations of this school. On the one hand, high school kind of sets the template for the Wiseman film mm-hmm. because Titticut Follies was such an extraordinary situation yet here is an institution that everyone has been part of and has some way to relate to even over a difference of uh, time and, and opportunity in and class and, and whatnot but it's also still kind of proto-Wiseman because his formalistic style isn't really developed yet he's doing a lot of extreme close-ups. He's doing a lot of quick cutting, which is something that he's going to go in the opposite direction of throughout his career. So it's still an an engaging documentary, but if you have been watching a lot of Wiseman as we have, it it certainly is a little jarring to see the the stylistic
1: differences. Yeah, the, I think it's fair to say that this is a stylized documentary. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most surprising moments for me in watching the F- F- Wiseman's films for this podcast was just being shocked at use of "Dock of the Bay" to open the film. I'm like, this is Wiseman. I was really surprised. And there there's use of um, other songs. One of the more positive sequences in the film is a teacher using the lyrics of Paul Simon to teach I, I presumably poetry or English. Just the dangling conversation. The dangling conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of a positive teacher because the mm-hmm. look on her face as she is hopeful that the students are grasping something that clearly means a lot to her is really mm-hmm. beautifully done. But it is another segment where you have use of music to make a point. And he also uses a song I had never heard of before called uh, Simon Says, not Paul Simon, just Simon Says <laughs> um, during a gym class. Where you see, like, the, these girls in some sort of jumper, I guess, like going through a, a routine. And it's just, it, it's much more stylized. There are also matching edits, I guess. Like, you'll cut from a recitation of Casey at the bat to someone hitting a T ball in gym mm-hmm. class. There's a um, mock kind of moon landing or like flight simulator that's cut to a marching band, like, almost like victorious astronauts coming mm-hmm. home. It, it's just really, um, overloaded in a way that makes some of it feel too much. The depth is still there in a lot of ways. It's just obscured by this other busyness.
0: I like those connections because I I find it fun and, and, and could be quite interesting to just look at how, for example, how enthusiastic the students are when their fellow student gets out of the capsule and then to have this marching situation. It, le- it just leads me to think of things, for example, like well, who's really celebrating, right? What is the really, enthu- because the marching band is done by the institution, right? So it's how much of the space race is the rah-rah flavor that the country was putting uh, the kids through, and how much is actually the enthusiasm of, of the kids? I think that's also a very fun comparison. This is one of the ones where Wiseman is closer to the work of a, a documentarian that I adore, uh, Errol Morris, and Errol Morris's Known for, especially in films such as Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, for make for explicitly making these matching edits and these jumps from one uh, topic to another, from one and from one form or one person to another, in ways that aren't making logical sense. They're not making a way of enhancing a plot, but there are ways of like making comparisons that could provide some uh, some really interesting ways of looking at both sides of the edit.
2: Right, and Wiseman won't stop doing this but he's going to be doing this with a much softer touch Yes. moving forward. It's hard to miss a lot of the kind of connections that Wiseman, the editorialist, imposes on us in high school. So now we're going to jump forward a bit into Wiseman in his prime after he's presented his style, as we'll come to know it throughout his career we're going to skip a bunch more earlier ones that i certainly am interested in seeing uh, films like law and order hospital basic training and we'll get right to the first wiseman film i ever had a chance to see 1973's
0: juvenile court that comprehensive look at institutions that i i saw just burst out from high school i think may reach one of the very high points in juvenile court, which is his look at the dealings in the Memphis juvenile court system, because he looks in through uh, the judges, prosecutors, defendants, and extensive looks at um, several cases that go through that system and how do these people react.
2: And he's looking at it very differently than he did in his earlier films because just his film style has changed where we have a lo- we have longer shots we have kind of a calmness of presentation that contrasts to the more jittery style of his earlier films so we're being very patient and watching the proceedings of the juvenile court Cases are presented, maybe not in total, but in a good, but with, but a good deal of time is taken to present everyone's point of view. So we're looking not only at the court proceedings, but also the juveniles being checked in, being psychiatrically evaluated, talking to counselors, and what comes across to me. In this film, and might be the reason that I became so enamored with Frederick Wiseman, is the compassion that's displayed here for both the kids, but also the institution itself, which in this case is portrayed not not as perfect. There's still some kind of nineteen seventies isms that that seem a little weird to today's eyes, but everyone really seems to want to help these kids and even if the decision is to be harsh with them they're presented as people who care
1: absolutely this is perhaps more so than any other film where the people running the institution come off in my mind pretty well one notable exception that we can talk about briefly but For the most part, you see people deliberating, thinking through, using their intelligence and skill to reach a decision they feel is best for the children involved. There's certainly kids who are upset, um, kids who are removed from homes. But what's really striking is the care that's taken here. And it's very, very interesting to see and actually provides, I think, a note of hope amongst the gloom we've talked about so far.
0: At every moment of the film, you feel them trying to find the right way, the way to do the right thing to you, what you said, Peter, the best interests of each individual child who comes through the system. And their needs are can be quite different. Some need a lot of more care and nurturing, and some do need a more stern approach, and some it's in the best interests of both the kids and society for the adult prison system to try to take care of them and so they get bumped up from the juvenile courts.
2: Right, so. that's one of the most common decisions that are are being taken on here is whether the juvenile court has jurisdiction or not because as long as they keep jurisdiction uh the kids are going to be dealing with reform school And with rehabilitation, but if they decide that they don't have jurisdiction, then they could be sent away to jail for quite some period.
1: Yeah, there's a noticeable or or, an interesting case toward the end of the film where uh, I believe the boy's name is Robert and he's just shy of 18. So they actually talk about, will three more months make a difference for this man, boy? Should he be tried as an adult or should he be treated as a juvenile? And the fact that they consider that, and they do, there is a little bit of scaring straight in, mm-hmm. involved in this. I think there are a couple instances where the judge is like, you know what you can get for this? You can get the chair. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see that essentially um, a tool in his toolbox, right, to try to get these kids... Uh, on what the right on the right track
2: so i, I want to talk about this judge because Wiseman really hit the gold mine when he when he picked the court with this particular judge if central casting needed a judge for a fictional film sure you could get morgan freeman right. but you'd, you'd <laughs> right. be just as well getting this guy he is so the personification of what I think people view a judge should be. He's, uh seems like he's in, in his 40s, uh, has this very smooth Southern drawl and a very reassuring sense of calm. But also he has this kind of compassion that he wears on his sleeve as far as his decision-making goes. Because we don't just see him on the bench we also see him in the chambers and he out loud is trying to weigh the plus and minuses of each of these situations and he's he's doing so in a way that shows that he's giving each case real thought but also in a way that's just very entertaining to watch.
0: He kind of looks like a bit of a bug-eyed uh, Christopher Hitchens <laughs> <laughs> with a with a Southern accent. And if for no other reason, if all the stuff about the inst- about the court system uh, was merely mediocre, just the fact of that Wiseman got to show us this guy <laughs> is makes this movie well worth seeing because. His persona is incredible to witness how he gives this consideration to so many things and yet has this unflappable demeanor on top of it. There's a moment that I was really taken in early when he is debating what to do in the case of a kid who's been abused and he's looking over Polaroids of this kid, and just describe. And we're not seeing the Polaroids, but through the descriptions, it's clear something horrific has happened to this kid. And as he his eyes flick back to the pictures that he, as he's talking through what needs to happen in the case, it's very clear to us that that this is a very traumatic thing that he's looking that he's looking at. But yet, it's part of his job to go and be as unflappable as possible and to be as proper to follow the, the fairest procedure as possible to make a sound judgment of what to do
1: I, I i'm just thankful that he allowed the camera into the courtroom i think too often even today america's legal process is 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 a too opaque um even to this day the supreme court doesn't allow cameras yeah. I, I mean i, I think the more that the country is able to see the, how a court works, I think the better off we would all be because there is so little black and white here that it, and, and it requires uh, extensive deliberation, thoughtful consideration by by capable, knowledgeable people. And that's really what you see. I, I think the, the key sequence to me is there's an extended case where um, because of the nature of the charges, the discussion is held in the judges' chambers and he allows Wiseman's camera back there where, where they interview various people involved in an alleged uh, fondling of an underage girl. And you talk to the girl's parents, you talk to the uh, um, the alleged uh, perpetrator, and the judge is really trying to work out what went on here. And it's a really stunning sequence for, like, a, a, as I said, for just the care taken, not only to get to the right answer, but in consideration of the parties involved. It's the court system most likely at its best and i just wish more people had an opportunity to see that
0: and the outlook of ev- to you what you said the outlook of everyone involved is i feel is a step up from his earlier films at least the earlier films we talked about and there is no explicit villains in that scene that you're talking about because even the person who is accused has a story that is plausible, and you're meant to at least consider what would happen if he was, in fact, wrongfully accused. It's an incredible benefit for people to view it to just show how complex and tough it is for everybody involved in here, which can only enhance the dedication that we see as they pursue these
2: jobs. And we get to see it in such detail as we do a number of other cases in the film. This is a uh, a film that's over 2 hours and a lot of Wiseman's films are are going to be longer. In this case it's really justified in in helping us get these perspectives. So in this uh in this child molestation accusation we find out uh from the mother of the alleged victim that she didn't want boys to be babysitting her little girl because she has been very worried about that kind of abuse take, taking place. So the lawyers are raising the issue of, well, if this was already on her mind and this is something that she even felt the need to talk to the young man about beforehand, does that put her testimony into question and of course the little girl is 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 so young that it's it's difficult to ascertain her point of view at all and the boy who does seem disturbed is adamantly denying it we don't get to know what happened what the truth is of the matter but we're presented this case from so many different angles and we see everyone's Point of view, and everyone is depicted in a way that we're invested.
0: And it adds yet another way to appreciate the difficulty of the task of the people involved in this court system that they can only help their part of the process. Mm-hmm. Wiseman makes it clear that certain things, such as the ultimate verdict of this or that trial, is something that's not going to be in our view. It's not and in a similar way, it's not going to be in under the control of these people. They can only in their moment that they are participants in this process do the best they can to guide for the best outcome. So they have to reach all the decisions with that in mind as well. So it's it is really great how the film illuminates just not only so many aspects of this process but the real virtues of the people having to make their way within it
1: i agree and i think as much as, we, as we've got uh talked about the positives of the institution that's presented i think there is one thing for me that i felt was a little lacking in the film and, and there's really isn't i don't know that there was much Wiseman could do about it but you can't help but when you're presented with a, a short window into the lives of these kids to want to know more. Like, what's their story? What's going on with them? How did they turn out? And there's no way for Wiseman's style to follow that, and he's not trying to, but it, there's just something inherent about hearing a little bit of a story like this and wanting to know more and not getting it. So it does feel like maybe one piece of the puzzle is missing here, but I, I don't know how you fix it.
2: Well, it, it will always be missing in, in Wiseman because at this point he is a strict formalist his movies are going to show us an institution in its moment in time and with one exception which we'll, we'll get to later he will never leave these very particular moments in time
0: and i would say though that the formalism helps the subject mm-hmm. in juvenile court i share your frustration at not knowing I think it's also important that when we're looking at this film that we understand that's something that the people having to make these judgments also share that frustration that they won't ne- that they won't know not just won't know the truth but might not even know what the results the ultimate results of the, the actions that they take will their actions have this kid have a better life or not it's more honest and more insightful for me at least to get that sense that there's things that are missing, but that's the part of the society where that's going to end up being not available.
1: I I understand. And I I agree to a point. I I think just on a a certain level, if you're watching a film and you have two things on the scale, you have an institutional interest and you have human interest on the other. I think I'm just intrinsically drawn maybe a little bit more to the human interest side. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that the balance of this film by design isn't going to go or give as much time to that side of things as I personally would want. But at the same time, I can understand that that's what it's not. It's not a failing because it's not trying to do it. It's just in this example, the, the nature of these kids stories was so compelling that I wanted to know more.
0: Mm -hmm. And I will say that with all the things that we're talking about, about how fair and equitable it's trying to treat uh, this process on top of all that, it does lead to an amazing final sequence where, which actually brings in a lot of very powerful drama to the proceedings in a way that I don't even want to go and spoil. I want people to see juvenile court so they can see how where the institution acts at its best and you see what it can accomplish. By the conclusion of the movie, at least I feel that way.
2: Yeah, I think if you're wondering about Wiseman and you're not yet familiar with his work, I might be saying it because it's the path that drew me in, but, but I have to say I think juvenile court might be the perfect entryway into Frederick Wiseman's work. So the next institution that Wiseman covers is kind of a mirror image. It's his film, Welfare, from 1975. And whereas you get this feeling of a functional institution in juvenile court, uh, probably the biggest takeaway that I had from Welfare is how it absolutely didn't work. This is a New York City uh, welfare system, and and most of the film consists of basically people trying to secure their welfare, secure what they need to live, and running into nothing but bureaucratic nightmares from the people working at the office. Lest you think Wiseman is only covering doom and gloom, I want to just briefly mention uh, a film of his from the. Uh, early 80s called the store released in 1983 it takes place at the uh neiman marcus store at the corporate headquarters in dallas and most of it is exactly what it sounds like you are witnessing the day-to-day business of a, a typical department store in in the 1970s and i think we come what to what might be a limit in Wiseman's style, which is what happens when you commit to filming for four to six weeks and place your camera and observe, and you don't end up observing anything particularly
0: interesting. Maybe it's his lens through which he makes his films, like any lens would from a camera, depends upon what you're looking at, can enhance it, or can maybe not do a whole lot with it. <laughs> it's. I think there's something to be said that the stakes in Cut Follies, Juvenile Court, and even arguably for the students in high school give a certain charge to things, whereas charging on your uh, charge account Mm -hmm. would not
2: but i think we're gonna have some films a little later on in the discussion of institutions that are not quite dramatically fraught but still provide moments of interest and drama as it is i I do want to just bring up a moment of visual fun that this movie uh contains which is really for me the most memorable part despite it really having nothing to do with anything else we are uh going down an escalator as coming up the reverse escalator is a clown on his way to his break kind of off duty but still in full clown makeup and and just it's framed as this wonderful visual reference isolated of nothing else throughout all of his films he provides these moments that are not story driven that are not moving the drama forward or enlightening us even more about the institution but just showing us kind of a strange moment
0: it's uh that's a great example of of what can be both Cool and slightly frustrating about Wiseman, because he's so dedicated in that formal way you're saying about, this is just a moment, if you were on that escalator and you just see the clown coming the other (laughs) direction and you just see it, and then it just happened, right? It's fair to that moment. However... If, say, Werner Herzog was directing it, you know he would have jumped across the escalator <laughs> and followed that clown <laughs> and see what the hell is this clown going to do. <laughs> so that's I think that's a good example of how his approach is gives us both some... It's both a truthful moment and then it's also a distancing moment at the same time because it doesn't get that to what Peter was saying on the human interest. The human interest is, you see a clown on an escalator, you want to know what's up with
1: that guy? Con- I, I don't know about you, but my human interest, if I see a clown, is to run the other way <laughs> <laughs> as quickly as possible. So uh, here's one vote for the Weisman method. <laughs>
2: We're going to move forward now to 1989, and the subject matter is going to, again, turn pretty serious, but the resulting film, I believe, is his best. It's called near death and to recommend a movie called near death is a little tricky because it sounds like it's an ordeal and and in a way it is but it it is so worth it Um, it's even more of an ordeal i should mention the running time which is about six hours And, and there's a reason for this but whenever somebody suggests to watch something like schindler's list it's something that we can truly value it's something that's that's meaningful and gives us perspective but it's not fun it's not a good time at the movies and i think near death is a film in that category although it's not might not be what a lot of people would assume it could be by the title it's not a morbid look at dying people suffering that's not the film's agenda we do see patients they're they're mostly being kept uh comfortable in the icu section of boston's beth israel hospital but what the film is truly focused on is the discussion surrounding how long we keep people alive quality of life all these issues related to how we die and it's not a topic anyone really relishes talking about or witnessing but because it's something so taboo and Wiseman's cameras are let into these incredibly private moments, it may be the most valuable of Wiseman's films.
1: I would second your statement that it's his best film. of The ones I've seen, uh, it absolutely is. I mean, it's just a strong work of film overall. Um, I, I think you really captured it well, Brad. The, the tension in this film comes down to, as they say later in the film, is this person living or are they just existing? And they're really talking about what does living mean? What should we do to uh, keep you, quote unquote, alive? And the idea of that term living, I think, is really explored in a lot of interesting ways because it, you have a really empathetic look at, how families need to be dealt with in this situation. How do they come to terms with their loved one uh, being near the end of their lives when you can do these things to prolong that life, but really is, is that in anyone's best interest? Be it the patient, be it the family, be it the hospital, be it the government, (laughs) honestly, Mm -hmm. because of the charge, the the finances of this do get mentioned at a certain point.
2: So why is the film, six hours the reason is that we're going to be witnessing a number of consultations consultations between doctors consultations between doctors and patients and consultations between doctors and patients families and what we're privy to is not an edited version of these discussions. We watch these discussions take place in full from beginning to end because it's basically going to be the most important discussion many of these people will have in their lives, and we're witnessing it. And Wiseman doesn't want to cut and provide highlights or just give you the idea. He wants you to have every single word of this shown so that we can put ourselves in the various roles, because you you, you do see both sides. There's an absolute conflict in occurrence here, which is that the, the, the point of view of the doctors and the hospital is that when quality of life cannot be provided that keeping somebody alive uh, artificially through extraordinary measures is not in anyone's interest and so they are trying to make the case that it is better to let the person go than to to frankly keep them alive uh, as a vegetable or as somebody with no hope of recovery on the other hand the patients who are awake and alert and can discuss and in the cases where they're not the the families of the patients are grasping for any hope there is and they want to live to live and they want their loved ones to live and they have to truly be convinced of this other point of view before they're willing to let go
1: I think the running time really does need to be there for the reason you mentioned brad it really It really needs to be there to communicate the emotional toll on of everyone involved, the patients, obviously the family, but also on the staff of this hospital we're in we're in the pulmonary intensive care unit at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, and we Over the course of the six-hour running time, we see these doctors and nurses have these draining conversations and frustration about what they can and can't do and how, in some cases, how there's nothing they can do. And I had an interesting experience in my own life recently where um, I had a, a minor surgery, a dermatological procedure, and the nurse there actually had transferred into dermatology from intensive care. Simply because she couldn't, as I believe as she put it, enjoy her life if that was her job. It just took too much out of her. And I actually had a short conversation with her about this film. The toll it takes on the practitioners isn't something that comes to top of mind when a family is losing a loved one. But that's part of this film, too. It really is a philosophical consideration of the emotional state of facing death. And that's such a high-minded thing that pulls off not only the intellectual side of it, um, but it also communicates with empathy the emotions that everyone involved is going through.
2: So in the course of the film, we get to know four patients or their their families, where we can't really know the patients themselves, and a medical team, but very specifically uh, two doctors it's worth noting how different they are in temperament, even though they're coming from the same point of view. You you have one doctor who, his coping mechanism is to kind of have a matter of fact attitude. He's straight shooter, tells it like it is, particularly when he's talking with his colleagues. He tries to be gentler with the patients and their families, but he still comes off a little bit gruff, and you don't want to judge that because we we're only seeing these doctors in in consultation. We actually do not see them practicing medicine. We see their their bedside manners, so we have this fellow who's really direct, and then we have. Another doctor who I'm uh, actually pretty in awe of who has this way of communicating that and i I don't make this comparison lightly i I, I mean this in, in the best terms that is somewhat similar to what I think Fred Rogers was able to do in the way he he talks to children his consultations lead to the same place but He's so careful and gentle in how he he gets the patients and their families to the points that they need to understand. It's an extraordinary skill that that he displays in just how he communicates and does so by asking questions and 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 that's what takes so long. He could be talking for 15 minutes before he gets to the point of we may need to consider that you won't recover.
1: I really, um, in my own life, with obviously far lower stakes, I watched this doctor who, uh, I believe his name is Dr. Taylor. Uh, one, of, one of the frustrations I have with this movie is that it's not always clear what a person's name is i believe his name is dr taylor but he's he's identifiable as he's uh he has a notable mustache right so that that's really how you think of him in the film is when you see the mustached doctor but i really would aspire to listen thoughtfully in the way he does in my own life because it really is um look you know living like in chicago here and in any city it's easy to be frustrated and on the run all the time. And just to watch someone who in the ultimate high stakes conversations is so calm, so thoughtful and ability and uses empathy to understand where the other person is and kind of gently lead them to the realization that he knows is going to be hard on them. It's really just a stunning thing to see. And the fact that Wiseman gives you or takes the time to show you these conversations in full, you couldn't get that effect any other way.
0: I want to just jump in here. I had not seen the movie, but it does. Your discussion on this leads me to ask a question. That why do you think Wiseman would be so emphatic upon giving the time to show what a considerate person this guy is and yet not give him a name since it sounds like he's doing really extraordinary work, even for that position. I
2: think it again goes, goes back to Wiseman's formalism. He just doesn't provide information that is extraneous to the moment in time itself. So in the sense that we care about these people, it's something we might want. But I think when we've gotten to the point with Wiseman, where we're into kind of his Six hour magnum opus, twenty years into his career, he's now very strict on his the way he presents
1: and I think that is a good question to ask and and to be honest, I had that frustration more so with near death as much as I um think this film is without comparison in terms of its achievement almost is that he does takes a couple unusual steps in this film in that he Will give you cards at the end, which fill you in on what the fate of each of the four patients we spend time with. Which is not something he would typically do. I
2: believe it's the only time he he ever did that.
1: Right. So he seems mm-hmm. to he seems to acknowledge that this film in particular needed a little bit more than he would typically give you, but he draws the line at providing the doctor's name or their position at the hospital, which I, I found a little frustrating. I mean, I, I to me like it, if even there had been five seconds where it listed the doctor's name and their position, Mm -hmm. that would have been adequate. It's simply because when you're spending this length amount of time with someone and they're really having deep seated emotional and philosophical arguments, you're learning something about them and it seems a bit ridiculous to know that about them and know how they feel about this subject, but not know their name. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me where Wiseman draws the line because he'll show you establishing shots of where you are, the name of the hospital. But for some reason, and that I don't entirely understand, he draws the line of giving you a name.
2: By the way, I do want to, you mentioned the establishing shot, and I do want to mention the the opening shot because it's such a powerful contrast that he provides. What we basically see along uh, the river in Boston, a rowing team. We see them in long shot, vigorously participating in their sport showing full signs of life and activeness. And it's an effective contrast to open with this image because we're going to be seeing so much of people who are, who are in bed and can't move or can't speak or can't breathe on their own. And, I think Wiseman wants us to be able to make these adjustments to live in this uncomfortable world for this period of time. I think that's one of the reasons he has the title cards at the end, uh, not only that, telling the, the fate of three of the patients, but also making the point that most people in ICUs survive because that's what he's focusing on, looking at people who basically will not survive and having discussions about people who, are, who will not survive. But he doesn't want to present the hospital as, as this kind of death trap. I mean, most people who go to the hospital will end up surviving, but that's not the world we're in in this film.
1: No, I mean, we're, we're in a particular subgroup, a population of people who are terminally ill. Mm -hmm. And as Brad mentioned, we follow four cases. Three of the four are elderly. However, there is one younger man. This was probably the one that hit me hardest simply because you see this um, man who has a lot of life in front of him succumb to an illness. And the conversations we mentioned between Dr. Taylor and, and the patient are really well exemplified here. But another interesting thing is that Wiseman... Here shows you part of the process um, of a hospital in an interesting way that is is tough to swallow in a lot of ways because this young man because they don't know exactly what happened to him it appears to be a toxic reaction to a drug of some kind that he was given for a for a cancer diagnosis because he things have gone so wrong for him he donates his body to science and you actually Wiseman actually follows that process through which means you see his body be taken to the morgue. You don't see this actually happen, but you actually see an examination of his organs by medical students. So you have seen everything that a hospital deals with. You've seen them try to treat this man. You've seen them um, deal thoughtfully with a, a grieving family. And then you've now you see what they have to do in the name of, of science and trying to improve the care that the hospital can provide. And there's a real toll to that. And this isn't an easy thing. I mean, you're in it. And you I don't know that you can drive that point home any more than seeing a patient that you would cared about basically cut down to his organs spread out on a table. Right. That image alone is worth innumerable hours of conversation because you can't tell that you can show it. And Wiseman does show you that and it, it's really something that again the length has to be there to allow him to take that journey and for that journey to hit you in the way it does i i think i will live the rest of my life never forgetting the image of that man's organ spread on a table because he lost his life but was thoughtful enough to try to help others down the road
2: yeah there's so much like that in this film that's unforgettable uh For me, it might be the family members, more so even than the patients themselves, because they're the ones who grasp on to hope the strongest. And so when the wife of one of the patients has this give and take with, um, as we referred to earlier, the doctor uh, with the mustache, who has made it clear that he's just going to be there for her, that the patient's comfort and her comfort are priorities the look in her eyes as she kind of realizes more and more the situation and their interactions on a human level are 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 absolutely what film can do at its highest level this is about death but it's also really about life and very few films I've ever seen are more infused with humanity.
0: So from near death, Wiseman goes to near Vale in what is a much more mirthful movie in his film Aspen from 1991. This is... One of his location films, and he is looking through all these different corners of the wealthy getaway and ski resort town of Aspen, Colorado. Part of the reason I say it's more mirthful is this is Wiseman at his most sarcastic. We were saying how he has a, sometimes he had presented a point of view that shows itself here and there through, um, his movies. Here, basically, it's mostly critically sort of snarky about Aspen and the denizens of the city. You're getting a real comprehensive look at the city for, uh, to show a lot of things that you wouldn't readily come to mind, such as the various attempts at establishing cultural events around the town, the Maintenance crews who uh, diligently make sure there's plenty of snow available for the visitors when the day will arrive. And the meetings of of the city council of Aspen as they talk about different ways to enhance parts of their town and the town's operations. You get all these looks, but pretty consistently you feel this undercurrent of how if you had the perception that people who go to Aspen are these quote-unquote limousine liberals, people who have a vast amount of money and have no problem of jet-setting all over the world, but because they eat free-range chicken, they are enlightened uh, social uh, creations... Wiseman very much shares, <laughs> shares that sensibility. Because what he would do is he, he would have this council meeting where they're saying, we're, we're going to present an Aspen for the people. I believe that may even be literally expressed. And then he cuts to a montage of shots of Tiffany's and sacks and close-up shots of the jewelry that easily look like they cost six figures. Yeah, there's definitely
2: a class consciousness about Wiseman. And he always looks with more empathy at those who have less. And so you don't often see Wiseman looking at affluence, but when you do, it is going to have that element of kind of
0: side-eye. <laughs> hmm Yes. <laughs> His deliberate way of holding on to an image or a scene becomes its own ironic commentary as... There seems to be no end on these council meetings and these various discussions that people have on the street or at the store or at the ski slopes where there uh, appear to be, have a never-ending supply of ability to out-enlighten each other <laughs> about how, uh, how great their life is. But, oh, you think your life is great? Look at the stuff that I did. <laughs> And they continue, go on and on and on in, in in a way that lets the gorge rise to your throat a little bit. And then when when someone makes something to show themselves as particularly uh, superior, Wiseman has a way of cutting from there to the hills where the snow is being made. And tellingly, he doesn't actually show the maintenance workers for the most part. They're riding the giant snow plows, putting in these hoses that are spraying the snow left and right, but you don't get close-ups of the people in it. So the impression almost comes across that, like, The Aspen denizens are the LOI from the Time Machine (laughs) story, and these mechanized Molochs are the real force that are building (laughs) in secret. Nice.
2: (laughs) That's actually somewhat of a motif with Wiseman. In almost all of his films, he will regularly cut to uh, maintenance workers and the the, the cleaning process and, and janitorial works, uh, it occurs far too often to be accidental.
0: If you ever wanted a, a nice expansion of sensibility of the scene from Caddyshack where Ted Knight upbraids a guy who's there to clean his shoes <laughs> and, the, and the guy's muttering angry things under his breath until sparks are coming out of the guy's shoes. <laughs> that feeling of, oh, these guys. <laughs> <laughs> it comes across in, in what I would say is uh, Frederick Meiser's most funniest movie. Now, that may not be the highest bar to clear per se, but... I got a lot of uh, fun out
2: of this one. Right. Well, the, the the next one we'll talk about won't be funny, but it will be a nice case of whiplash from Life in Aspen, which is his 1997 film, Public Housing, that shows us the lives of the residents of the Ida B. Wells uh, public housing development
0: uh, right here in Chicago. Finally, our town gets the Wiseman treatment. And it's not just whiplash in terms of looking at the lower classes, but his perspective upon everyone in the film Public Housing is as empathetic and generous in a way that Aspen's presentation is mildly contemptuous and snarky. We meet
2: another one of the great Wiseman characters to to compete with our judge from juvenile court she's an older woman who first you think she's kind of frumpy a little stern but her job is to represent the residents of of the public housing system and she is a bulldog we see her on the phone giving people the business we see her meeting with people telling telling them how she is going to represent them you, you you she may not be paid for this like a lawyer or have the professional degree but but oh my god this woman is such a ball of fire i love her <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: oh the the passion which she fights the bureaucracy of the system is just a wonder to behold I mean, like where you get that reserve of energy to do that on a daily basis is just really stunning. And it's, it's frustrating, too, because you can see what she sees and that there are there should be resources available. She just can't get to them because the red tape won't let her.
2: Right. And a lot of what we're seeing is the poor standard of living that, that people in, in these housing units face. Uh, we again, speaking of maintenance, we... Uh, have an exterminator uh, coming into one of the apartments, and he goes into this old woman's apartment, and it really hits home, the squalor that, that some of these people are living in. And and you, you see different levels. Different people have kind of different types of lives in the public housing unit, but, but it's always a struggle. We're also seeing it from so many different points of view. We have uh, a lot of police and in- interactions but it's very much saved from being kind of an episode of cops because kind of mm-hmm. like again with juvenile court we we see that there is an effort to get to know and under and help the people of the community So even when they're running into some this this woman who they suspect might be dealing drugs, they're 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 not looking to arrest her. They're looking to provide a stern warning to try to get her off the streets. And kind of the elephant in the room that 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 I had trouble not thinking about through a lot of these interactions is the contemporary uh, tragedy of of police shootings that are epidemic throughout the country. We see in this film from the 90s uh, a very different look at how police uh, and minority communities interact.
0: And that's uh, great that you brought that up with the issue of police shootings because this is another epic-length film of Wiseman's, and I think the best way I could describe it is by changing the title slightly to say Chicago, colon, City of Hope <laughs> because its comprehensive outlook, its dedication to showing angles that you never ever see on the local news or even in really well done newspaper articles is very similar to what John Sales's movie City of Hope was doing to say, look at all the interacting moving parts that make an operation like this scale work. There's so many corners in there, from the exterminators to the shopkeepers to the various levels of the bureaucracy to allocate funds to allocate resources towards whether it's towards repair or in terms of giving uh, uh, economic opportunity. All those are given a level of attention. But it also does the concept of City of Hope literally in a way that I think goes a little too far because almost everyone that we see in here is treated emphatically and incredibly compassionately and almost exclusively is shown to have this incredible generosity of spirit. In other words, they're mostly trying to do the right thing and make sure that everyone is as successful and happy and fulfilled and and lives up to their possibilities as possible. And I don't believe that's accurate. I think it's a little too sentimental and one-sided to giving a positive message. You may very well be right
2: because we don't know what was on the hundreds of hours of film that was shot for this movie we know what wiseman chose to present us and we know that wiseman is an artist but also a person with a point of view and something he wanted to express about the chicago public housing system and i think none of us are naive enough to not realize that there's also some bad shit that goes down and some less-than-noble players. But yeah, we're, we're definitely being led in, in a particular direction. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that that's a bad thing because bias is something that is inescapable. It's been present in every single film we have and will talk about. But other media has given us a certain portrait of what life in public housing is like and i would suggest that what we're the portrait we're given in other ways is a lot less well well well-rounded and shows almost exclusively the negative aspects and so i think there's value in showing that this is not a place where people go to die this is a place where people struggle and some are able to make things of their lives. Others are able to get by, but what we're seeing is a side of life we wouldn't normally get to see.
1: And and I think it's important to mention too, that there are things that are established in this film just through their very presence, the way they hang over everything. And really what I'm thinking of that the drugs in the area Influence everything that happens that we see almost everyone a lot of the men we see in the film have criminal records Mm -hmm. Um, There is a heartbreaking scene where uh, a man who is trying to get into treatment for uh, Or trying to get a drug treatment program Has an extended interview and he talks about all the struggles He's had and he's talking to this counselor and in the end They're not sure he can be admitted into the program because of a charge he has on his record this was in the mid-90s. We're still in the war on drugs era, and you really see all the harm that a policy like that did. And what you're really seeing is within that harsh environment of the drug trade, of a misguided government pr- approach to that problem, how the souls living in that environment react and how they struggle And I think that's really what this film shows. It trusts you to understand the environment these people are in by showing you having all this stuff in the background. And then you appreciate the struggle of those people all the more because you understand that.
2: I'd I'd like to give another example of that kind of dichotomy, which is, for me, possibly the most memorable scene in the film, a sex education class. You have an instructor and the instructor is trying to explain uh, the proper use of the condom and other aspects of, of sex education. But what we notice and what becomes more and more the focus of Wiseman's camera is that all these young women learning sex education are there with their babies. What kind of irony is that? They're teaching sex education... But it's, it's too late.: They are already mothers before they meant to be.
1: Right. Right. And, and that, that scene really is so, in a microcosm, tells you what the film is trying to do, specific to the women in the scene, but it really applies to everyone we see. What that scene is, is telling them is that, look, you have worth and you have to take control of your body, and this, the birth control available to you will allow you to do that. And it's really something that I don't think the women in that room had been told before. And when you when you combine that situation with the war on drugs we talked about earlier, where a number of the men are either in jail or have criminal records, and now there are children who don't have a father, perhaps. Right. That environment is, is such a tough thing to be in, but what Wiseman shows you at this program is that if it's allowed to function, and given the resources it needs that can make a difference. You get good people involved, you get resources behind them, that there's important work to be done here, and it can be done. And what public housing shows you is the community that it benefits when it's allowed to flourish. See, Peter,
0: that's where the hope part comes in for me, is when I see public housing, the first time I saw it, I had a intense feeling of oh my gosh there is an answer to the situation that these uh, people find themselves in and seeing it again now i have a lot more of a perspective that they are struggling against this system but the system's a lot more implacable than i think Wiseman is presenting in public housing that there's forces at work that are keeping these people down that no amount of programs and beneficial meetings can provide. And I don't think Weizmann is addressing it. But to Brad's point, the movie does provide an incredible value that step one, or maybe even earlier than step one, is to, to what you said, Peter, acknowledge that these people and the people working to help them have a great deal of worth that is not being presented to the public at large. This movie is entirety is a great antidote to how the projects are presented on the news. F- two or three minute snippets of a building on fire or rampant crime, done as a threat to both drive up ratings and create a scapegoat for a city's problems.
1: Well, if I could say just one thing I, to the to the point about the potential or utility of government programs, I think it's important to note where we were in history at this point. So we're in the mid to late nineties. We're in the Clinton presidency in the second term. But prior to that we had 12 years of Republicans and conservative government cutting programs. And then you have Clinton pivoting to a more conservative position of welfare reform at this time. And that that hangs over everything. So to me, if you look at it in the context of when this was being filmed, I see Wiseman saying, look at the utilities and the potential that they, these programs could have if, they, if they're given the, the do they should and the resources they should. I think this film, to me, is a reaction at that time to cuts of government programming and all, to me as a liberal being all the more frustrated by it because it happened under a Democratic president. But that's what I think this film is saying, is that these programs have utility. And especially at the end of the film, where I think it ends on a relatively hopeful note of a lecture to a a, a gymnasium full of people about how they can start businesses, how the funds will be there through this particular program to move forward.
2: If this was made in 1968, around the time of Titicut Follies, you would have had, I think, that message hammered home to us in a way that is unmistakable but as it is there there's a level of subtlety and an an urge not to present easy answers so i do think peter that i do agree with your assessment of kind of the overall political environment and i think wiseman would as well But I think what he doesn't want to do at this mature level in his filmmaking is to try to solve the problem. He's not presenting a singular solution, but he is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, trying to traffic in in some hope. And and that last scene is is really indicative because it is an inspirational speech from a successful man who went uh, from playing basketball to being an entrepreneur, but who grew up in the projects. It's very cleverly intercut with uh, a kind of a, a connective element that's been going on throughout the film. We've been occasionally cutting to an ice cream truck, playing a tune to attract the kids like Pop Goes the Weasel or Turkey in the Straw or things like that. We've seen this truck about three times with no context, which is just another element of life, but they cut at the very end straight from this inspirational speech about entrepreneurship back to the ice cream truck and then have the ice cream truck's tune play over the end credits, which basically says that this is an example of one of those entrepreneurs that the speaker was talking
0: about. Yeah, you're right when you have it playing over the end credits that it is clearly meant to comment on the success on the person who has become a successful businessman. It adds a nice little grace note on the end of what his message is on public housing. Ice cream trucks are significantly less necessary in the next one we're talking about because he travels from Chicago to Belfast, Maine in his film of the same name from 1999. So now we are in the heart of what it means
2: to watch a Frederick Wiseman town film. We've briefly discussed this, but in Belfast, Maine, we will talk about the pluses and minuses of this particular format. And one of the pluses, I would say, is the scenic gorgeousness of... The areas around the town itself—it's a fishing town in Maine—and the first thing we see are uh, fishermen out at sea. The simple environment of it of it is beautiful. Then we move on to various elements of the town, but what we don't get, which makes the town films a little bit less accessible, is we don't get to follow. Characters as consistently as we do in his other films. So we'll see some older women tending to some flower designs, and we won't see it again. We'll be moving on.
1: It's a mosaic look at a, a community. Um, it's also four hours and nine minutes long. <laughs> yes. It's,
0: it, it's a little less of... <laughs> see, the thing is, you say mosaic, and I say you take mosaic beads and you throw them over a parking lot?
1: (laughs) This is is a very scattershot film. It's it's wide and not particularly deep. It's a bit frustrating to me. It's almost like a sampler for a lot of better Wiseman films in that he has short segments which correspond to films he's done already, uh, the hospital, folks needing uh, social services. Because these people don't recur... You don't really get connected to anything, and this film just goes. It seems like it goes on and on, searching for something that it never finds.
2: It it shares this problem with a number of the town films, and for that reason, I I, I tend, even though really there's there's no Wiseman film that that I actively dislike. There are some that are kind of in the Mac category. And a lot of them for me tend to be the town ones. Wiseman in so many of his films is expert at structure and economy and finding the most interesting people to see, the most interesting places to show, and creating themes out of those. He does that so wonderfully in so many of his films that it's strange to see that not happening here.
1: He wasn't able to find the theme he wanted and therefore just chose to give us more of everything. And it's just, I grew up in a rural area and uh, not in this type of environment, but hunting is, you see a lot of hunting in this film. I grew up around hunting. A lot of what you see here is a community um, based around hunting in terms of a social pursuit balanced with some other stuff there's an interesting conversation about gay marriage at this point which the film was shot in 1996 i believe Mm -hmm. so that's an interesting note for its time so there are these little interesting nuggets but basically what what does is intersperse these with some repeated scenes of uh, home medical visits or social services that even though they repeat don't really add anything new to the film when they repeat it just seems to want to drive home the point that there are economically disadvantaged people growing old in this small community and i don't know that he has a lot else other to say other than presenting that this is a case where i'll defend his long films but this film doesn't earn it
0: there's a couple places where he repeats and some of them are more successful to me and some of them are considerably less successful. The the parts where they show people in various states of decrepitude, it comes across to me that it's the same sentiment that was shown in Bogdanovich's the last picture show and could have basically be done in any sort of town where maybe time has passed it passed it by which uh, by the way some of the outfits and hairstyles may give (laughs) lead you to that impression as well i think more successfully is this idea that processing taking raw materials and turning them into something else and just how people have to find themselves that's the institution I think he's criticizing or he's found to comment on in Belfast. I mean, because in, in especially in terms of the food that people are consuming, well, it, there's a shot where it's in a supermarket, but then at that moment, you have had some intimate examples of how that food had been cut, diced, processed, packaged, steamed, and so on. And it's a it gives you a different appreciation of how much sheer human effort has been involved in what we usually consider a matter of convenience. Now, Peter, I have a question on you on that, in that because I personally have a very, very limited experience of in rural environs, so I was wondering if you saw something in this film where you go, hey, that's something of the world that I grew up in that I that no one ever notices when they usually talk about this this kind of part of the world.
1: So I grew up in a rural area in Upper Michigan and hunting culture is big up there and basically um, you see a number of scenes in Belfast Maine, of uh, animals being hunted, animals being shot, animals being skinned, a man going to his hunting blind and waiting to shoot something with his bow. That is not uncommon for rural areas. It's just some of the scenes in this film which appear to be of a violent nature, and they are violent, are more commonplace in rural areas. Deer hunting season, uh, where I grew up, it is one of the highlights of the calendar for a lot of people. We actually, when I was a kid, could take days off school to go hunting if we wanted, and we could be taught to gut a deer after it was shot. I've been to uh, houses where, during deer season, the deer they shot are gutted and hung outside from the trees. I once, when I was in middle school, I was getting a ride back to school from football practice, and our coach uh, said, hop in the back of my pickup truck. I'll get you guys back up there. And we got in the back of the truck, and he had a dead deer there that he had shot over the weekend. And I sat on top of this deer carcass and got a ride back to my school. And, <laughs> and that was just a common, that that was Wednesday. And so a lot of this stuff that you see in Belfast, Maine is Showing you what a community that is. Now, I personally, I've never gone hunting. Um, I've never shot at a living thing. I was never really comfortable with that even when I lived up there. But it is a way of life. And he does show you that. And that's what I think what he was trying to get out of this film is kind of the rhythms of life in an environment like that. It just never quite finds its rhythm.
2: Right. I mean, there, there are themes and I think you guys hit on it with the idea of the dying town, but there's so much else going on that doesn't mesh with these scenes. So when you make the decision to make a four hour film, you need to have that consistency of content that connects the various elements of the film together. And if, we're, and if we're going for long periods of time without that, it just makes the film seem more scattershot.
0: To some extent, I guess he would feel that if you're going to look at a whole town, doing it in 90 minutes would not do it quote-unquote justice. Because in his earlier films, he was very dedicated to saying, no, there's another corner, there's another part that, that is never really exposed upon what happens in the system that I'm examining in my movie. But what's lacking in Belfast, Maine, his movie, is any central thing to tie these disparate things together. In all the films we've talked about, there is a central thing. And sometimes... Like in Near Death, it flows through as you go through, the, and also in Juvenile Court, it goes through as you see the trial progresses, and you have the involvement there. In other films, he has a central idea, like in Aspen, he has a central viewpoint of Aspen, and the different parts that he show hang like ornaments off the tree. But here there's no tree. There's not even a stump. <laughs> mm-hmm. he's, he's looking at this part, and it's the court system. And it floats, upon, it floats away because it's totally its own thing. And when you get to the conveyor belt of fish, it also floats away because it's its own thing. It doesn't tie into the court system or the look at this old guy and his attempts to get his medicine. Or this part where you have two people talking over a psychiatric relation problems on the hood of a Camaro for some reason those points do not connect. And so the movie's dissipating on you as you watch it. It also gets burned by a sense of formalism that he's been doing progressively more and more. And I feel may even come more to bat in even later films. But it's pretty bad in this one where he interperses these dis- already disconnected scenes with shot after shot after shot of buildings and streets and intersections and cars moving down other intersections and intersections that have buildings on them. And about the 128th time I've seen this, it's like, I know the place has streets, Frederick Wiseman. <laughs> you don't need to show this anymore. That's the kind of thing that is
2: actually very effective in better movies, because he does do this regularly, but because we don't have the content to support it here, it's stuck out. But I, th- I think that kind of technique is actually very powerful in many of his other films. Uh, I liken it to what this uh, great Japanese director, uh, Yasujiro Ozu, has these scenes that critics call pillow shots. And basically they're short cuts in between scenes of something in the environment and they have nothing to do with the plot they have nothing to do with the themes even they're basically there to create a barrier and give you a chance to contemplate as you go from one scene to another and whether wiseman was emulating ozu i don't know but the way he uses these shots feels somewhat similar to the way Ozu does.
1: I think the idea that life in this town has all these various facets and these different tendrils you can follow is an interesting idea and a workable one. And I even like the some of the pillow shots you're mentioning because it gives you a sense of place. And It's just that when you're seeing those at the four-hour, four-minute mark, they maybe have a little less impact than they would at two hours and four minutes. And yeah. it just, it runs out of gas. It doesn't get to the finish line, unfortunately.
0: I have to admit, but while this is very scant, there was one part of the movie that I found straight up hilarious. Maybe one of the funniest moments I've seen in Wiseman, where there's a, apropos of nothing and unconnected with anything... Uh, You get to a person lecturing a random assembly of people about an event that happened in the Civil War and Belfast's uh, involvement in said war, and you see a a collection of different people. And right in the center of this group is a guy with a very curly mustache and a, a prominent bushy beard. And Wiseman then cuts to a close-up of that exact same individual <laughs> intently staring at er- and listening to every word this person's saying. <laughs> and I looked at that and I went, oh my, this I think, is the first time I've ever seen a documentary give a double take. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we transition from Belfast, Maine to Paris, France for a film that is unique among unique films in the Wiseman canon. It's called The Last Letter, and it was released in 2002. And probably the first thing to say about it is that it is not a documentary. It is uh, a filmed performance of a play that Wiseman also uh, conceived and directed uh, this play which was based on a chapter of Vasily Grossman's novel Life and Fate and is a one-woman show starring uh, Catherine Sami. It's basically an an hour-long dramatic reading of uh, said last letter of a woman who, during the Holocaust, has been sent to a Jewish ghetto. And it is powerful and moving.
1: This, this really hit me hard. I I wasn't quite prepared for this film. I also watched it for the podcast the day after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. And wow. I mean, I did the the performance by uh, the lead actress is just something to behold. And basically what you have is a tremendous performance in the one of just a beautifully filmed black and white that uses shadow really well that tells part of the story through shadow.
2: Yeah, those shadows become really a, a key tool because this is the story of one woman, but the theme of the play is, of course, this is what happened to millions. And so you see not just uh, her own shadow, but multiple shadows repeated in the background very expressionistically shot so you're getting through the visuals a conveyance of a community of of victims of the holocaust as a larger concept but applied here to one person's story but through those shadows we understand it's not just her story
1: They felt to me like shadows of the lives lost, shadows of the spirits still hovering over this woman. And it's just beautiful. I mean, sadly beautiful. I don't know how else to say it.
0: I'm really taken by this movie as well. Part of which is that this is Frederick Wiseman at his most cinematic. I use that word to mean that he's using the elements of what it takes to make a movie image to inform that story, and he goes as far as he's ever done by leaps and bounds in this. This is a great example of not just even a hidden gem, I would say, so much as a great counterpoint in a career, because you look at the, w- in the ways that this film is different than the Wiseman films we are talking about, it helps enhance all of those films. I'll just give you one example. He uses shadows beautifully as the character emerges and descends into shadow often. Often you see her walk off stage and then you see the shadow, her shadow on the wall, mm-hmm. pass by. And then several occasions when she's addressing us directly, you see dozens of shadows behind her. And what I get out of that, when I saw it, is that there's hers is one, uh, to your point, Brad, hers is one of many stories that got snuffed out by this epic, tragic moment in history. But it also makes a powerful statement upon how, how he looks at institutions, especially, but maybe even also towns in his other film. Because it's important, it seems to me it's important on part of his outlook to show that these are not the only individuals who are going to be going through this high school or this juvenile court or, or a hospital or through the projects of the public housing. But we only get a chance at a glimpse of those people at that moment. And then once they disappear from our view, how much did they become shadows? So when I... Uh, this may be just an impression I'm getting. When I see that in the last letter... I feel I'm getting a true sense of Frederick Wiseman's outlook expressed in pure cinematic terms. How much validity do we give, and how much of our empathy do we give people in the stories that Wiseman's done throughout based upon where his camera is lighting their lives and the moments in their lives?
2: He may have felt limited in his scope of Uh, portraying contemporary life because he's very clearly interested in those who are oppressed through various means and as a jewish man he certainly would be acute to the history of, of the holocaust and that he actually launched a stage production very much outside his usual comfort zone, probably speaks to the importance that he put on this project. One of the reasons I think it's so effective, aside from the the sheer brilliance of of the the directing and and the acting, is that it's one of the few Holocaust films that capture the idea that... um, A Holocaust story really needs to be about the dead. Even some of the greatest Holocaust films, films I admire to an incredible extent, like Schindler's List and and The Pianist, by virtue of being a drama, they focus on the survivors. But the survivors were the exception. There's a more recent film called uh, Son of Saul, that I would highly recommend mm-hmm. as something that captures some of the same mood but as you get into the content of the letter and you hear how at the beginning there's the surprise at the oppression and at, at at her neighbors abandoning her hope becomes less and less as this letter goes on that she's writing to her son until we understand that she's going to suffer the the, the same fate as the other millions.
0: I just want to add that if maybe a conventional filmmaker showing the public housing projects may have focused entirely or mostly on the guy at the end who gets a dramatic triumph of transcending the projects... Mm I think we're getting in last letter on a, a real basic concern of Wiseman about the people who are left behind.
1: One of the things that hit me hardest in this film is there's a, the sequence where she talks about her neighbors slowly turning their backs on, on her. And eventually as it becomes more out in the open, actually fighting about taking her possessions after she's taken to a camp and the distinction the, the the script makes is that she's happier in the camp because she has a community of people there she's with, as opposed to being out in a society that buries its hate toward her until it's too late for her to uh, until she recognizes it too late,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that distinction, especially in this moment in time we're here having now in the U.S. where a lot of prejudices are coming much more out into the open. I couldn't help but think of that and just think how harmful this buried animosity and the indirect ways it comes out can hurt someone to the point where you're more comfortable being persecuted or being taken away. Is I just, I just don't want to say to that. Now
2: that's an element I don't think I've ever read before or, or seen in any other Holocaust adaptation and it's really a powerful one, that the ultimate result uh, of hatred may be death and murder, but another result is complete alienation that, that comes first.
1: In a facet of life where it's never recognized, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just something that I, I think I, maybe everyone, on even if it's just a subconscious level, know, like can recognize that feeling, but... When it gets out into the open like that, and you really are forced to contend with what that feeling does to people and what it does to society, that's a really tough lesson to hold. And I think this film hits all the harder now just because of what we're going through in this country. Agreed.
0: I think it's also notable that another reason that it's distinct among Weissman's work is that has this... Calling it irony is a little too simple. It has this appreciation of... a contradictory part of human nature. Like in how, for example, we're more used to a a system that we're familiar with, even if the system itself is horrible, than spend the moments to accurately acknowledge bad things that the system is providing. And this... This sense that people can be sort of at odds with their own perspectives on things is, I think, brought around really, really well on the writing, and I'm very glad that Wiseman took it upon himself to use this piece. But in this pe- that very piece, and in this performance, I see this, all these examinations uh, of, this, of these parts of human nature that all the hours in Belfast, Maine do not point out. And that's sort of something where Weisman in his film, other films has a point of view, and he uses these things to sketch out or take different facets of that point of view. But the core story in Last Letter is a lot more probing upon itself. And the sense of self-examination upon the main character is also what helps make this compelling, as is its truncated length. I think it's interesting how you get the the sense of this community turning almost as much from the things she does not say or the, the way she sighs upon something as much as the things that she eloquently describes. It's a great case for me about how less is more. And is something really interesting to look at how Wiseman does his, uh, ra- main, his other films in that context.
2: That's a good point. And the one other piece of art this most reminds me of is a very short book from Elie Wiesel called Night that talks about him and his father's uh, experience in the Holocaust. It doesn't cover the same ground, but it does cover some of the same tone.
0: Finally, for me anyway, I think one of the great values on this film is to show how Wiseman who is we demonstrated, is is a very much a formalist on things that he was de- on things that he's going to show and things that he's not going to show but he has a formal restriction that's placed on himself mm-hmm. because he doesn't pull any Orson Welles stuff with the text to just try and make it about him and his story. He's faithful to this text and, and being faithful to his depiction on this performance. And sometimes it can be very interesting to see when an artist goes and says, when I have these restrictions and I try to make a compelling movie with that, what is the result? And I take the feel emotions and feelings and situations of the last letter, and I take it to heart. I feel for some reason that it's sort of a personal thing of Wiseman in a way that he can't get behind hours and hours of footage. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That stripped away of the ability to throw hours and hours of <laughs> shots of things, and he has to pull it out of him the shadows that he has and the... and how he concentrates on the actress's face is something he has to bring himself. And so there's something of himself that I see in the last letter, or I think there's a chance of seeing that might be very instructive and, and interesting to note for him.
1: I think it highlights too, and maybe something I, we haven't mentioned is, is just what a great eye he has in the, in a the number of Shots, even going back to Teddy Cut um, there are a number of shots in the courtyard which are beautifully framed. Mm-hmm. And Near Death has uh, a shot where there's a man's family discussing his well-being with a doctor as they're all visible through a window in the background. And it really just tells you everything about the movie in that one shot. Mm-hmm. And here we have that as the distilled focus of what he's doing visually. And I, th- I think it lets you know that, hey, I, ha- I have this other gear I can use it when I need to, and it's beautiful. And it's a really nice reminder of one piece of his documentary work really amplified to a beautiful degree here. Mm -hmm. Very much
2: so. And as we've been doing all along, our next film will switch gears completely as well. It is 2010's Boxing Gym that takes us into uh, Lord's Gym in Austin, Texas to see an aspect of life that maybe the everyday person's a little more familiar with. I love this film. We've been talking a little bit about the positivity in films like juvenile court and public housing when applied to very stressful situations. But I think with boxing, Jim, Wiseman offers his most positive and and sunniest vision and really a template for community because we are seeing a microcosm here of every ethnic group, race, gender, age, type of person all coming together for a purpose in a single location that's designed as a place, yes, to learn boxing, yes, to work out, yes, to get in shape, but also to form a community. It's also shown visually, because unlike maybe some modern chain gyms, this is a place so filled with personality. There might not be a single blank spot on any wall in this gym. There is a there are posters, artworks, uh signage in every single space. So no matter where you're looking, even if you're not looking at the people, you're seeing something. You're seeing a piece of boxing history or a, a piece of art that's evocative. And then you're also getting all these people's individual stories.
1: And those stories are really the highlight of this film for me. I, I, I'm a little bit lower on the appreciation scale than you, Brad. I, I like this film. I think it's it feels a little bit slight to me, just because I, I think the cross-section of different uh, ethnicities and everyone in this gym... It's interesting, but there's not so much of a focus on why is he choosing to do use a boxing gym to demonstrate this. Um it, it's not really different from any other like group or subculture that I can see. Um it is interesting what boxing means to these people. It has a variety of meanings. It's there are some young kids looking for self-esteem, people in their prime looking for a career, uh new mothers who have kids in tow looking to get their bodies back after giving birth, mm-hmm. um, men in their forties looking to maintain their physicality. So that part of it is interesting to me, but a lot of times he's focusing on conversations that I felt could have been happening elsewhere without delving too deep. This is one of his shorter films. It's only 90 minutes. So I appreciate what he did here. It just didn't uh, land with the depth for me that I think it did for you.
2: Yeah, I think it's almost accidental depth as far as (laughs) Wiseman's motivations, because when he starts a filming process, he doesn't know what he's going to find. And he's been going through all these institutions, and and at this point, for one reason or another, he felt like a gym was an institution that, that he was curious about and wanted to explore. I don't know that he knew that it would become such a symbolic place and that's something that he emphasized again in the editing this is an example of what i thought was missing from belfast maine but but here he does expertly is finding the most interesting person in the room and he seems to do that again and again in boxing gym there's also uh, another issue that i think gives it some resonance and it has to do also with the timing of when it was shot because it happened to be filmed just after the virginia tech shootings so it's late in the film all these people who have been coming together for one purpose now find comfort in each other in the face of an outside tragedy. So this place becomes kind of a refuge from a world in which something like Virginia Tech could be allowed to happen.
0: This is a case where Wiseman's tactic of putting in an establishing shot of a building over and over and over again has a good purpose to it because As the day goes on, and especially after the events of the Virginia Tech Massacre become publicly known, the establishing shots of the gym are shown more often at night, with a bright orange light of the garage door entrance, Mm -hmm. making it look like a sanctuary for the people paying this gym a visit. Now, while not disputing anything you said there, Brad... (laughs) I have to say that this is the one Frederick Wiseman film that I straight up hate. I hate this movie, and I <laughs> don't ever want to see another moment of it. And part of the reason, a big part, is that I, when I saw it, I got burned by my first impression being of the title. I'm seeing a movie called Boxing Gym that has absolutely nothing to do with what I like to see about boxing. I am a boxing fan. I was a fan of the Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler fights and the, and the emergence and uh, fall of one Iron Mike Tyson. And I find that in boxing, the sport, there's a lot of drama And the pure humanity that comes out of the conflict of one person being in the ring, facing another person, and how are they going to uh, triumph or overcome or deal with these two people punching each other towards towards getting a victory. None of which is addressed in boxing gym. Instead, dedicating scene after scene of boy, look at all these people talking, and then look, they're they're ha- jumping in and out of a tire, and oh, they're jumping rope. They're jumping a lot of rope. Uh, here's them punching the bag for another uh, for a couple hundred times, and never in this movie do I see this attitude of f- of what boxing is about, which is this sense of primal conflict and confrontation and pulling in reserves towards in that sense of, co- of one-on-one competition that I find so dramatic and so fascinating in the, the sweet science of boxing. <laughs> Instead, you get all the, all, the, all the talking that comes in before that.
2: Well, if that is what you were looking for, you you are absolutely correct. This, this film has none of that. Yeah. I was not looking for that, so I was not disappointed. I would also suggest the cinema has offered you multitudes of films that will fulfill those needs uh, yes. of the boxing fan. There are no shortage of some... Wonderful to not-so-wonderful boxing films all over the cinematic landscape. This is a film whose tone I have not seen replicated in other films. So I was... Enthralled mm-hmm. by it, but then as as we said, I came in with different expectations. Exactly, than you did. I
0: fully acknowledge that my perspective is a big reason for why I it, the movie hit me the wrong the movie hit me the wrong way. But I want to briefly explain where I thought I was going to get. In that, there's so many components of boxing that actually aren't addressed in even like in analysis when you watch it on a uh, on a TV screen, and I feel that Wiseman that, if that got the Wiseman treatment, if, for example, you had the discussion among managers upon, well, this opponent has been shown weakness in this area and this is the strategy that you use. There's actually a lot of strategy that's involved in a boxing match that, that is under, underrepresented. I was looking at it from the focus of seeing somebody else in the ring and how are you going to beat them. but you're very right the movie is not about that it's about the boxing that the everyone signs on for is a means to a, a different end for each person and not the end in of itself well now but you can scarcely get a, a more a more different place in both intent and in realization in the next one we're going to talk about his film crazy horse from 2011 which may be the first one we're talking about where he's about putting on a show, <laughs> where the, that's the ostensible focus of what does it take to put on a, uh, to get a performance out of the Crazy Horse Burlesque Cabaret in uh, Paris, France, particularly of a show titled Desires, staged by Philippe
2: Decoufle. So the first thing we should establish about... Uh, this is that it is a classy show got values yeah you, you, we're we're talking about a strip club but we're talking about one that uh, is i uh, maybe like a little like the one in showgirls where they are yes. they have pretensions that they're going to put on this absolutely <laughs> magnificent uh,
0: theatrical extravaganza right with naked ladies. Right. It's, uh, it's right. It may even not get up to that level and struggles at times to be above the level of the performances in the killing of a chinese bookies club
2: <laughs> right but but the behind the scenes stuff we're seeing everyone's taking this very very seriously the director has many many artistic notions that anyone who wants to talk to him about practical matters will in, uh, immediately get shut out <laughs> yes yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, as if the as if our descriptions, if the descriptions of both the French title and the French director did not lead you to start rolling your eyes upon, like, oh boy, does this sound like really pretentious for a script club? If you had that feeling, you're gonna get a lot of enjoyment out of Crazy Horse, <laughs> I think, because I'm I laugh my head off about it because it's so amusing to me to see these people put up these intellectual concepts out of. Bearing your breasts on the uh, uh, in a way to just amuse bo- uh, tired uh, Parisian businessmen <laughs> on, and, tour- and tourists. Actually, oh, it's definitely for
2: tourists because yes. a lot of it is in English.
1: Well, and I, I think to the extent there is such a thing, Crazy Horse is a world famous strip club, right? I right. mean, I mean, I I think you say the name, people know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's been mentioned in songs. It's been it's you know all <laughs> over the place. And yes, I yes, I was talking about girls, 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 but.
0: It's it puts the world class and world class strip club in the same way as if you saw something advertised as the world class strip club buffet.
1: <laughs> so there's no a, a, buffet. B- buffet. There's no <laughs> truckers stopping in for buffets.
2: Then there's the way the women are presented in the show, whose main purpose seems to be to decontextualize the female body. And Wiseman really emphasizes this in some of his camera work. There's a, a cut during the show to uh, a shot that if you uh, looked at it from a certain perspective, you might think was representing a mountain range of, of hills. Mm-hmm. But in actuality is a uh, plethora of airs. You have another scene that utilizes a mirror uh, in a way that uh, you see, you you cannot tell where uh, the woman stops and the reflection begins. They're, they're showcasing these naked women and, and trying to make them appear as anything but naked women.
0: <laughs> well, I think it goes, the movie goes one better. And I find it just a delight to see at several points, like the mountain range is... The handiwork of one Frederick Wiseman, because he's framing it that way. That's not something you would see on stage. Mm -hmm. It's filmed close up and the camera and then the camera slowly fades in like it's a morning from Belfast, Maine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you realize, until you realize what these mounds really are, <laughs> and in a and there is a moment where I think is one of his most cinematic. Until I saw the last letter, which is where one of the strippers' routines is on a uh, on a rope as she's t- as she's twisting along this rope. But the ca- I, I was noticing the cameras actually swooping in around her to try and capture the the human form in motion. By contrast, when you see the actual show, it is this waiting for Guffman as if it was done in Wisconsin Dell's level crap. <laughs> as they as they have these really chintzy glitter landmarks of different points around the world. Why they while they're in marching and lockstep going Paris is great. It's great, (laughs) Perry. And you're like, oh my God, it's so cheesy. If literally Corky from Guffman had spelled his name C-O-R-Q-U-E with an accent, (laughs) Ague, it would scarcely be... Uh, a more apt premise, and yet it's really happening. He's really depicting. And that and that even gets besides that he also has a bit of the Boogie Nights delirium of the early part of that movie where there's all sorts of hangers on and lackeys and, in fact, one charming guy who basically looks like he has no function in this operation at all except that he gets the chance to see some naked ladies. <laughs> well, no, he's fun
2: because he's he, apparently he's a fan that got hired in some capacity. He wants to make it clear that as assistant director, emphasis on assistant, he doesn't actually get to make any artistic decisions (laughs) that the director does, but he's doing something.
1: He's neither an assistant nor a director.
2: (laughs) And I I also love the fact that that he's he's such a super fan that he's uh, memorized and adores the Crazy Horse theme song, which is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, this is a little different in the sense that Wiseman has been creating this landscape of Americana throughout his uh, career, and, and this is in France, but it should be noted that he actually spends uh, a bit of his time living in France. He's fluent in French and has done other films in Europe, uh, including in, in France, a film about uh, more legitimate dance. And even though it's not an American institution, a strip club is still an institution.
1: We have a few yeah. of those here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, you know, speaking of institution, it just actually it, it just actually occurs to me that, probably in the most cosmic irony, is that if you were to exchange the title of this movie with titty-cut folly, oh, no. they would both be actually incredibly more appropriate to the other film. <laughs> and
2: on that note, we will switch to Academia. <laughs> for actually i have to say i think might be one of his greatest works at berkeley released in 2013 the institution being focused on here is the berkeley campus and we see so many elements of what makes campus life from classrooms to uh, students uh, at various activities on campus to board meetings uh, with the, the chancellor and the university uh, staff. And, and we look at uh, so many elements of life at Berkeley. But unlike most Wiseman films, this one can
0: actually be spoiled. It does something to a documentary that David Lynch did with Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive's first half starts off with all this imagery, but it seems to be a little formless, but then at around the halfway moment, it both illuminates what the stuff we were seeing in the first half, but then uses that as an engine to drive in how things resolve on the second half. You know, in what may be his like most dramatic work, but drama that comes in from the situation.
1: Yeah, this is one of uh, his strongest works for me as well. Um, I had a chance to see this at the Chicago International Film Festival here. And this was the aforementioned there will be no bathroom breaks during this four hour movie (laughs) at the request of the director. Um, But you know what? That running time is earned you really do get class, you basically get um, class sections presented which are extremely interesting, touching on economic inequality, talking about f- the future of robotics, uh, Walden and Thoreau, time, space, physics, mm-hmm. all these things. You sort of get a sampler of what it would be like to be a student there again, and it's, it's just stunning. And, and at the same time, Berkeley holds a certain place in the American uh, conversation, right? It's, it's a representation of protest, of student, um, student-led, students pushing back against um, restrictive government, things like that. And what's interesting about this is the protest here really serves to look at how is this institution reckoning with that reputation and that reality in modern day. And the real dichotomy there that I find interesting is you get you have students who are protesting in a sort of ill-defined way, Like they know they're protesting in something, but they can't really express themselves in a way that registers with anyone. And then you contrast that with a lot of the faculty at Berkeley who were the students protesting in the 60s. And they're somewhat patting themselves on the back in a way about how we knew how to protest in the back of the back in the day, which I find really distasteful like that that sort of self-satisfaction yeah. um, from that generation has gotten to us into a lot of trouble mm-hmm. as a society, I think, and it's really personified But here. The, the
2: context of that is really interesting because we're seeing a lot of board meetings, and, and that, that we haven't mentioned it that much, but now might be a good time to mention that a lot of Frederick Wiseman films uh, feature extended segments of... Uh, of board faculty business meetings something that depending on how curious you are about this kind of thing might even be the considered the boring sections of otherwise fascinating films now i think here is Wiseman's best use of these kind of meetings because in the first part we're going into the funding problems that the university is facing uh from the basically funding being cut off from state government. And they're frustrated by this. They're like, oh, God, how are we going to maintain our quality as an institution of education in every program they offer while having less and less access to money? And are they going to have to raise student fees, raise tuition, all of that stuff? And so we see the administrators struggling with this before we even know there's any kind of protest going on then as we start to see rumblings of the protest itself we realize that the protesters share these concerns but as young protesters and i i have to say that i have been in my college days uh, to a couple of these myself there's a certain youthful idealism that goes into them and it, it's something that we see from the administrators point of view now why we don't really see a lot from the protesters point of view is a good question it might be that uh Wiseman chose to focus on the administrators or it might be that he couldn't get access that maybe students planning a protest uh were a little hesitant to uh have their internal plans uh filmed when they were trying to really spring something on the administration.
0: That's one part where I have to ding the movie a little, because while it makes perfect sense that, that Wiseman's not going to get the inside scoop as to when this protest is going to take place and other details upon that, those rumblings could have received some more attention... From the other side of it, the rumblings that I see in at Berkeley mostly, if not almost exclusively come in from what the administration is hearing and seeing and feeling, whereas you could, for example, have gone and talked to this or that student who had similar issues with the the increase of fees and the lack of services where who was not themselves going to be personally involved in it and and what i think is one of the in one of the movie's weakest moments they have the protest in a building and the resolution of the protest is handled entirely from their the perspective of the administrators not only does it end and we know about its end from a conference phone call but the very next shot is a shot of the now completely deserted building and they're taking down the banner did they disperse okay were more cops involved were some of them were some of these protesters maybe a little angry about what happened to them did they did a group of them go somewhere else we are not given any of this information and i in a way that i feel is is unfair to this to a situation that i think fairly demands a look at multiple perspectives well,
1: well i think what he's saying there is that it i read that as being critical of the students is basically saying they dispersed because they were didn't really know why they were there in any deeply felt way in the first place but mm. what what's what's interesting to me about this film is there's a middle segment um, where a a former member of the Clinton administration, Robert Reich has a segment talking about how an institution grading itself and getting honest uh, assessment and honest input is invaluable and that he would actually seek out people who would be critical of him so that he, they could grow, he could grow in his work. Mm -hmm. And that's basically a, a thesis statement of what Wiseman's trying to do here we have an institution that's struggling at how does Berkeley remain quote unquote Berkeley when the economics of a new uh, genera- a new situation are closing in on it and you have what's frustrating is you have the students in effect grading Berkeley and speaking truth to it in a in a kind of haphazard way that doesn't register with the administration because the students are too ill-formed in their thoughts to get to them, and the faculty is too smug to receive it. And it's this kind of hallowed American institution that you can see where it's struggling, but the two sides of the struggle aren't capable of getting to each other. See,
2: I'm going to disagree with you guys and try to make a little bit more of, of the administration case here because I don't think it's so black and white. There is actually a commonality in a goal in the goals of the administrators and the protesters, but when they talk about how the protesters are doing it incorrectly, they make a point because when they they took over the the library and created a list of demands that apparently uh, included all kinds of things under the sun, things that the administration could not fulfill, even if they wanted to. They made the point, and I think it's fair to say, and this is a little bit of my frustration as a liberal with some liberal politics, is that when they were protesting in the 60s against the war for civil rights, if you focus on something achievable, getting out of Vietnam, the Civil Rights Act, voting rights, we have shown through our history that that kind of protests can yield much more success than i think the current trend of saying that until everything is perfect until every single social justice is righted that we will not cooperate until that time so i do kind of see where the administration is is coming in they're 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 not the uh, stereotypical kind of uh antagonists in this kind of relationship they do from what we see understand where the protesters are coming from but they have to look at the larger community and yeah some realistic restrictions on what they can and can't do
0: well this is an interesting in that this is the first time at least in the films we were talking about where he where wiseman is dealing with an institution where he takes the institution's side, but also has the existential threat to the institution. Mm-hmm. You don't have the moment in Titty Cut Follies where the inmates have a run of the asylum, or that's not, that's not a possibility. It's not a possibility for uh, a vigilante in juvenile court to do the right thing by this or that case. No, the institutions are there. It's a fact of life. And so I think it's interesting to look at the film in that way, in that, in that Wiseman's been doing these films on institutions for now for about over 30 plus years. And so he sees – to what way does he think that an institution can be taken down at all? Like maybe he had that attitude that they're, that the students' protests were going to be futile – by default. Right. In These a way. protesters were never going to take down Berkeley. <laughs> right. And then but and also it's the uh, when you said it's like in black and white, I think the movie's showing things in gray and white. <laughs> because Wiseman gives an incredible amount of attention to the different people in the in the administration. You see. As in the early parts that they all stake different positions. Different people in that administration place a lot of value in the kind of countercultural mission that Berkeley was so intrinsic of the decades past. Certain other people are more sticklers for the rules. You have to obey the rules. Certain people are a little bit eager to say, well, let's just bring in the cups and let's get them this <laughs> let's get at this first. And it's all in context of what you feel in the beginning as organizational things. But then, what, that's what makes the twist great. When the protest happens, all these different attitudes are now put under a cauldron, <laughs> and they're left to stew, and how are they going to react in it? And those debates upon exactly how you respond, who gets to respond, under whose voice, who, who gets to be the witnesses on this, that is very, very interesting in how multi-layered it it is upon all these competing personalities but they have to yet represent the institution. I just wish that the student part of it was dealt with in any, even a fraction of as, as comprehensively as the administration.
2: But but I'd say part of uh, the subtlety and the art of this film is that it is Hmm. because every classroom scene that we witness is about maybe what they're learning But it's also commenting on this environment and the role of education. One classroom is of uh, future teachers, and they talk about what it means to be educated, what a college degree is all about. Is it to just get a job, or is there a higher purpose to higher education? We see discussions of inequality and racism and what it means to be the only minority in a room. So we're, we're hearing student voices in these classroom scenes that are not directly related to the protest, but as a narrative, because I, I think this is the Wiseman film that most closely represents a fictional narrative film. Uh, in its structure, we're seeing all these elements function as its own thing, but then also as background for the spine of the narrative, the protest.
1: Well, mm-hmm. and I think a large part of that is because Berkeley as an institution is so unique. There's no other institution he's looked at that holds a place in the counterculture. I mean, it's almost like, how is the new boss not going to be the same as the old boss? Mm-hmm, right. And that's what we're talking about here is these different generations of, of Berkeley. Right. Um, But it's just to me, it's like I I think I take a bit darker view of this film and that it shows, like, uh, to me, uh, an institution that right now at that point in time isn't capable of responding to what it needs to respond to, even though both sides are sort of aware of what the problems are. And it's just really left me with the feeling of, like, how are they going to get out of this? I mean, money, we know money is going to keep getting in shorter supply. And is it going to be able to function? Is it going to keep its identity with even less money as they move forward? Because they don't seem to be able to respond to the problems they're facing.
0: Um, well on that note, I mean, this did this, and this is something that the movie doesn't make us explicitly aware. It might be to its detriment, but one of the administrators makes the point that the youthful groups making the protest, they need to air their grievances. They need to air their grievances publicly we need to give them a moment to air their emotional and social issues. But the idea of letting the protests continue as opposed to bringing in the cops to excru- extricate the building right away is to give them that moment. And you might think that's cynical, but at least as far as the, how the movie presents it, it works. They needed a chance to vent. They vented. They went back to their classrooms so was it unsuccessful was there something that happened negatively that did that they that the institution failed to do i'm not sure about that you could make an argument that this is something that that Wiseman may have left out but i personally don't feel that way i can sort of see how it he showed what he was able to show in the footage and and I don't feel that he's being manipulated, but, but I don't know what you guys think on that. Well, also left out is the
2: possibility that this is not such a rare occurrence. Mm. Protests happen on every campus. And at Berkeley, I would think more than most because of its rich history, we're seeing one episode. And we don't know because it's outside of Wiseman's scope what the next protest looks like how that's responded to we could probably do some research and find out what happened to funding uh at berkeley but that's also outside the scope of the film so no no we 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 don't get to know the results of all the rigmarole, but we do get to see fascinating human behavior on all sides
0: as these ideas clash. And I think it's... I, yes, I think this is a really interesting movie to compare with Juvenile Court, because I don't know if you guys feel that the Juvenile Court is a feudal system. I think we kind of had an agreement that it looks like they are people who are trying very hard to get the right outcome. And while that while the movie does, is very fair, Juvenile Court I mean, in not get, letting us know that Will the right thing happen every time? At least I'm not left with a sense that, oh, this is a bad situation in juvenile court. I'm not left in feeling that that there's something wrong with it. And and so at Berkeley seems to me a little bit of an expansion on that idea. Is is Berkeley doing is the administration at Berkeley doing something wrong?
1: It's more omission than commission, I think. Mm. Um I, I just nice. think I, I think it's they have all these all these things are in the air, right? Like economic, I think if you boil it down, to be economic inequality. And like the students are feeling it and the university's feeling it too and neither really has an adequate response. And I don't know if either side really articulates the severity of the problem or how they can respond to it. It's more like they kind of point the finger at each other instead of pointing the finger at like the economics sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's to me like the frustrating almost... Uh, tragic is too big a word but um but the 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 heartbreaking part of it is just that you have these two sides of this institution that mean so much to me at least to the spirit of america mm-hmm. that how are they going to maintain that spirit as the crushing hand of economics comes down on them
2: to that effect i love the way the film ends with a theatrical performance and per the stylization of of the entire film we get little snippets of this performance before it occurs in full but it's out of context so we don't really know why we're seeing it but uh then uh at the end of the film after we've reached this impasse and kind of a dramatic crescendo has happened we get to a kind of interpretive dance Set to the tune of uh, Willie Nelson's "City of New Orleans," which and the lyrics to that song, you know, the "Good Morning America, How Are You" business, uh, <laughs> really kind of connect what we've been seeing to kind of a larger American story.
0: <laughs> the, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but i think the Nashville connection rears its head again <laughs> as the idea of you're making a sort of a you're making sort of a, a grander statement of using one place to make this to make this larger point. Uh, also, it's a point where Wiseman says, I'm making music to make... When I'm dropping music, when I'm dropping the needle, it's going to be to make an, to make a point to it. Right, because almost all his endings are in
2: silence. So when, when, mm-hmm. when there's no, something other than silence going out at the ending, he, yeah,
0: something's going on. Yes, and also, it's really interesting to me to compare it with the stylistic choices he did in making the production of The Last Letter. Because what does it mean that they're in silhouette? Like high schools, courts, it shows that these are figures who are unique. You can tell the silhouettes are different, but also it shows the transience of it. That Berkeley has to deal with the idea that every year there's new students and the concerns are both kind of universal, but then also specific to each individual. And I think that sort of is... One of the things he's looking at in At Berkeley, when at, by showing these images, the, to show there's all these competing forces, and, but they're just inhabited by different people at different times. And that includes that counterculture spirit. Now, one other thing I want to highlight about At Berkeley, because it'll bear, come to bear in the movie we're about to talk about, it's, it, it comes to mind to a line in Zero Dark Thirty, where when Jessica Chastain's character has a meeting, and uh, and as, as she leaves, um, uh, one of the head guys and his assistant, his assistant tells him, oh, she seems really smart. She seems like a real smart person. And the the head guy says, look, we're all smart people. <laughs> <laughs> Part of that frustration, Peter, that you expressed on at Berkeley, I actually think maybe in a way it's a value of the movie, because... It's showing these intra- these problems, but also incredibly smart, articulate, thoughtful people who spend a lot of time trying to address those problems. And so part of the frustration comes from how how effective can it be for people in terms of meeting and communication and education to deal with this problem? And it seems to me that's a very prominent concern, maybe even a more concentrated concern in his next movie that we're going to be talking about, Ex Libris, about the New York Public Library. Now, this film shares a lot of similarities with At Berkeley, one of which that I love is that Wiseman gives an extensive look to all the different features that a library can provide just like all the different classes can provide in Berkeley and all the different intellectual directions that such an environment can offer for people.
2: This is kind of a mixture of all the different types of Wiseman films. It's institutional in that we're getting to know the public library system from every angle conceivable. And it's a bit of a town film because we're going to all these different branches of the library. And there's also performance elements because we're seeing uh, speakers and musicians and people uh, who would be the cultural attractions at your local library. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how the various branches are distinguished because. A lot of it takes place at the main library branch, which is downtown and this gorgeous old-style facade of a kind of tourist attraction. And then you go to these branches, which are probably a little bit more like the libraries most of us are familiar with, and see the differences in the attitudes of the people in the main office who who are responsible for the entire system, and then people who are very attuned to local needs.
1: Yeah, this is a very interesting, to me, political statement by Wiseman. I, and I think the opening gets to that point because it uses a, a Richard Dawkins clip. Dawkins is one of the speakers at the uh, library. And this is a very divisive guy, right? He's unapologetically in the face of uh, anything that can't be proven um, by some sort of uh, scientific means. Mm-hmm. So he wants fact. He wants and, and he wants to be um he wants all focus to be on the establishment of fact.
2: And his claim to fame is kind of uh, a advocacy of atheism
1: right exactly and he'll push back against the the idea that religion and faith is kind of a foolish thing but i think what what Wiseman's doing here is he's using a firebrand to say that look this is one way you can say it but society hasn't a, a, a obligation to defeat ignorance and the way the mechanism that you do that as a society is through distributing knowledge and that's what a library really is is a distribution system for knowledge and it's a consistent the the film consistently focuses on internet access for people mm-hmm. so that that knowledge can be as widely distributed as possible the library isn't a tomb where knowledge goes to, to die under layers of dust. It's something that's alive and can be distributed out to people. And his clear passion for this subject is really interesting. It's not the words passion and library don't go in the same sentence very often, but they do here.
0: There is a little bit of dust, though, in in one of his more cinemat uh, in one of his more impressive bits of cinematography. You have a, a staircase which have these lovely dust patterns as slowly settles as a, as a sunset passes by. <laughs> but but Peter, when it comes to putting library and passion in the same sentence, that is a sentence I often wa- uh, want to say and shout out. I am a personally a huge fan of libraries. And so it thrills me to no end in many parts of Ex Libris to not just show that Wiseman shows the value of the library. In other words, it's a store of all this amazing information. and And everywhere you look, you have a chance to learn something new or get a deeper understanding of this or that subject. So that's the part where I specifically love about libraries. But... He gives the library the public housing treatment to show that the library is this literal force for salvation in many communities and has, is so valuable at increasing the potential from, the, from different communities, not just in terms of the internet access, but also in literacy programs, um, communities where kids can hang out after school programs where people talk about job opportunities in their local area
1: where seniors can remain active there's Mm -hmm. like a dance scene in here
0: exactly it shows how the library is so much more than in than the stuffy rows of bookshelves that we are accustomed to once again he takes something that we and confounds our expectations by giving us a comprehensive contemplative silk in just all the possibilities of what a library system has to offer.
2: Because if you even just focus on the lectures, if the, the subjects being lectured upon couldn't be more different yep. from each other, you have one speaker talking about the history of slavery. Then you have Elvis Costello talking about his autobiography and uh, his father. And you, you, you have so many more examples of this intercut with kids at reading hour, or people doing research, working with microfiche. Because Wiseman loves this stuff, because he's advocating for this, and because he's as great a filmmaker as he is, he makes it infectious. I don't know how you come away from this movie not Loving the public library system, and and,
1: and one thing, and the one way he does that, I think, is this movie is in love with the faces of the people at the library. Mm -hmm. There are constant close-ups of people' faces as they study, as they read, and it's not an accident that the faces are multicultural either. He's showing you how this can reach all different ethnicities, all different people throughout society, and it really is something that. It's another thing that you can show, but you can't tell necessarily. And those faces in this place tell you all you need to know about the library system.
0: It's a way that he shows all these different people from all walks of life and and all these different races and ethnicities, like you say. But what they all have in common is the sense of rapt attention to whatever subject at hand is being discussed or or uh, lectured about. Very rarely, at least inside the confines of the library, do you see the bored teenager checking out their cell phone when the when these lectures are taking place. So, uh, I feel in a public housing kind of way, it's an idealization of of the idea that the of the idea that on whatever subject there's going to be You can be enraptured by it and enchanted and listening in and hanging on every word. And that's a sentiment that I personally uh, cannot agree with more.
2: There's also some really interesting filmmaking tools he uses here to express distance and how the different branches of the library uh, contrast to each other. We talked a little bit earlier about these pillow shots, how Wiseman will cut uh often to a a scene outside in this case it will be basically a shot of the uh, new york city streets or the skyline or something to reflect the area and al as we were watching and i think you came up with a really cool observation which is that the number of pillow shots in between each scene indicated how
0: far the branch was from the main library nice yeah that that was a really amazing when i noticed it was happening Mm -hmm. because i guess pillow shots is a way of just saying just like take a break or use it as a palate cleanser or something but now it actually has an artistic creative intent to express distance through editing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and in in a key towards events that happen later in ex libris it also shows a social distance like, I was saying on at Berkeley how the very high-minded ideals and, and intellectual theories that are spoken by people in Berkeley, how adequate or inadequate they are to deal with the situation at hand. Here, I think, he's spreading that out to show across the whole community of Manhattan and and, and the New York City area how when you're cutting, 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 cutting to get to the area where the main administration is talking not only is it using more cuts to show more distance but the closer you get to that room the more empty the hallways are mm-hmm. the more what the more ornate the hallway is the more uh, the more brightly lit the more it looks like the overlook hotel from <laughs> the shining and the more and- tourists are taking photographs in the lobby <laughs> exactly that's right but when when it cuts to go back to a branch library there's more Human activity there's there's more variety, more diversity, and more hectic energy that comes in. So you're really showing the kind of social, but also personal, and thus distance between the intellectual pursuits on the one side, and then the down and dirty work it takes to help a community on the other side.
1: Well, and that is really like toward the end of the film, we have a a way that the Wiseman puts a button on all this really well. And that we go to a branch called the Schaumburg Center, I believe, and it, there's a focus on a number of the library members are African-American at this branch. And we ta- they tell a story about how a Texas uh, textbook has mischaracterized how African-Americans came to America and basically softened the role of slavery in the fact that a number of African-Americans were, uh, in fact, abducted from Africa and brought here. And the, the fact that they're talking about this in the library gives them uh, space to push back against that false statement and the fact that it would be disseminated without um, something like a library system to correct it right. really puts a point on how important this is. Mm-hmm. If you allow that ignorance to metastasize out in society, then you're going to have a much bigger project of, cleaning up the mess than if you try to have the knowledge distributed in the first yes, place. Yes, and
0: it's also key to note that this is something that the branch library expresses, but up till that point, we had not heard this specific issue being raised in all the meetings that the main head of the administration is is talking about. They're talking about other issues, and those other issues are valuable and important, such as modernizing the library and increasing internet access and so on. But with one notable situation of dealing with the homeless issue of the main library branch, this is a very direct threat to a library's mission that that was not addressed. It's sort of how, whereas in other Wiseman movies, you're looking at the institution and the threats within it as various challenges, this is where he's also making us aware of the different perspectives, that people in the upper echelons can mean well, but yet they don't have this perspective. It's a lesson for both sides, right? That's a, that's a great point because, I mean, the people
2: at the main branch who are are running the whole library. I mean, they they, they are doing the angels' work. I mean, if they do their job well. It it ideally should help all the libraries. But you're right about about perspective because if you're working in downtown Manhattan every day, you might intellectually know what might be going on in some of the poorer neighborhoods and neighborhoods that don't have the resources that the big libraries do. But, when, but, but Wiseman takes us to that, especially that branch at the end, where we realize how specific the needs are. And he's like, this is just as important the little stuff what can is perceived as the little stuff of one small branch that affects the whole
0: yes and i want to add even more to that because it's also notable that the branch is there is mostly has african americans making this discussion and the upper echelons of the library system while having a mixed race is more uh, caucasian based mm-hmm. But that's less important to me than once you see how the mostly African American presence at the branch library, much like the protest in at Berkeley, it lets you look back and all these lectures that you were thinking were about these disparate topics, but just in the general purpose of, of promoting knowledge you suddenly notice that, oh, this was there was a racial tint to this idea of migration. There is a racial tint to the, this idea of a, a product getting developed. And these base human motivating factors, they're getting addressed, but almost as a side product of the things that are really sparking people's intellectual interest. It's, it's a sort of a disparity between Oh, this is what motivates me to talk about it, but the racial component is still there. And so it shows how a very prominent part of our behavior is coursing underneath and maybe even alongside the discussions that are being had in the most highest intellectual way.
1: Well, and and there's a nice scene, a small scene that underscores that, I think, where a woman is tracing her genealogy, surprisingly, through the library. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a demonstration that you can have societal knowledge, but you also get individual knowledge as well, and you learn more about yourself and that it that really is a nice vision of the library as this individual seed that then grows into societal knowledge where everyone is better off.
0: Mm, great point, and, man.
2: And because he's Wiseman, yeah, we're getting this uh, call to arms on knowledge. We're getting this wonderful advocacy. But we also get the behind-the-scenes meat and potatoes, too. So we have uh, a few scenes of just the conveyor belts the books go on to yes. when they're being returned and, and how they're placed into the correct carts and where they're going so that they can be put back on the shelves. It's mm-hmm. just attention to detail at the same time as advocating a larger themes and points. In our, the Orwellian age we live in now, where pe- there are people who are questioning the very idea of truth and facts, mm-hmm. this movie is even more of a treasure.
0: Right. It's a prescription that may be more and more needed uh, today.
2: Right. But speaking of the age we live in, we will uh, travel to one of the birthplaces of that age, of the small rural Midwest in monrovia indiana which came out just this year 2018 it's another town film so for us a a, a bit of a, of a red flag uh mm-hmm. we we have a little bit more trouble with the, the town films but what's in, what's interesting to me about it is after our discussion of belfast maine how this movie really delves into the exact same themes again but does it better more concise more thematically consistent and i think just makes its point uh stronger which is uh the same point as belfast maine the idea of the dying small town of as progress moves on what happens when people are are left behind in in these environments so we're going to see a lot of the results of businesses closing and economic issues, but we're also going to see kind of the culture of what makes this uh, small town tick, which is in this case really focused on the farming
1: industry. The tension in Monrovia, Indiana, which I I really keyed in on is it is very much about death. Um, there there are many shots of graveyards, uh, And Wiseman is very concerned about the way that this process is playing out for towns of this type. But the interesting part is that there is also attention paid onto the opportunities the town has to expand and the resistance to that expansion in some of his trademark meetings that we see. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a council meeting of some type. It's not really spelled out exactly what they are, but it appears to be like a city council and they're talking about um, different housing projects or projects is around housing developments the city may be able to use and draw population. And basically there's a resistance to that housing development and there's some kind of coded racial animus. I think one of the council members says they're always calling cops to this area or something like that. And so there's sort of an othering of the people who live there um, but it's really interesting, and I think the tension here is saying that, look, you have two choices in front of you, expand your horizons and allow more people in, or you die. Those are the two choices you have, Monrovia, either grow or die.
2: And it's still controversial because you see people in these meetings who are decidedly anti-growth, who you oh. don't just want the town to stay as it was.
1: Absolutely. They cannot allow what they view as theirs their vision of their monrovia to change and that obviously has a lot of connotations to the larger moment we're in here right now and this film was i I think i'd market it as the wrong word but the word of mouth was it that it was wiseman's trump voter film and i don't think that's really fair because it's not directly political in that way but it is sort of getting at the underlying themes that a lot of trump supporters and undoubtedly feel
2: the, the t word is never mentioned right. which is just as well the closest you have is an uh, affair you see a booth for the uh, local republican party you you, yes. you do not see a booth for the local democratic party which may very well not exist but this is the base these are the folks and to get to see how they live and get to know them to the extent that Wiseman is able to join them in their conversations at the bar, in the restaurants, is a valuable service. And speaking of service, uh, quite a bit of the film takes place in church, as would be a, a large factor in a town this size,
1: and it ends... In an extremely curious way.: So the ending sequence of this film, which, I think, as we mentioned, is a bit shorter for him. It's two hours and 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and I would it's say, short. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the last 20 minutes of that running time, roughly, is an extended funeral service. We see a eulogy be given at a church, and we follow um, that procession to the graveyard where we actually see the coffin being put into the ground. And I I believe even like it being covered with dirt after the family members have left, if I remember correctly. And that is by far the longest segment in the film. And it's a very clear point as to where I think Wiseman is saying that this town is headed Mm -hmm. um, right now, because you don't devote like that chunk of running time to the film without trying to make a point.
2: Right. It seems very complete. Unlike the various shots, when you see pigs, being herded off uh, into trucks which by the way i was very relieved that they didn't have a local slaughterhouse because i'm sure we would have seen all that yeah. but 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 when we get to this ending scene what, what what really strikes is that you're not surprised that they're they're showing this service and the, this funeral but you keep expecting them to cut and to, to to move from this on to something else and it doesn't it stays there and so whatever, what Wiseman is trying to tell us is in that sequence. And yes, it, it, he is exploring themes of death.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we should mention too that Wiseman is someone who's in his eighties at that point. So he's Mm -hmm. closer to the end of his life than the beginning, obviously. And I would guess that that theme is maybe with him more now than it would be at other an earlier point in his life. So maybe he sees that a bit more, but it really is stunning in the fact that like there's no holding back. He, there is a clear, I think, directorial intent to say that the path communities like Monrovia are on results in death, mm-hmm. that they will not last. And that to me is really, I, I mean, it's a courageous thing to say. It's not going to be popular with the community that he's portraying, but I think it's accurate. I'm someone who grew up in a rural community. In fact, um, Monrovia, um, if you substituted iron mining for farming, Monrovia is very similar to where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So I was familiar with a lot of kind of the community I saw there. I understood that. And I do think that my town I'm from, when you go there now, it does feel like it's, it's dying. Because so many people have to leave just to get opportunity elsewhere. That a majority of the people who are left there are in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And I think Wiseman underscores that in this film by not only the extended funeral sequence we mentioned, but there are a lot of shots of gravestones that have dates of death going back from the 1880s and so on. And I think he's just underscoring that those are the type of people who are still in Monrovia and that it, the city is going, or the community is going to go with them unless something changes. I do want to say it ends on a very gloomy note, but um, and just as someone who did grow up in a small town, I do want to mention some things I I liked from the film. Um, We've talked about Wiseman's Eye before, and I think that while the first half of this or first quarter of this film maybe is a little slow going, there's some beautiful photography in it. Um, One thing I notice whenever I go um, home to Upper Michigan is how clear the sky is and how you can see the stars at night. He has a lot of low angle shots looking up at the guy where it's almost like he noticed that too. And that's one of the things that from a pure perspective of feel made me feel like, okay, he he has understood part of what makes this community attractive, that what what's there. And I really liked how the first part of it, like frustrates from a thematic point because I think it takes a little while to get going. But from a visual point, you're, from a visual perspective, you always have something... Um, beautiful to look at.
2: Yeah, it's that balance that Wiseman, at his best, can always strike. Yeah,
1: and the other the other funny scene is there. Are, there are a lot of. Kind of scenes of old dudes talking at the bar. And I've had the experience of, after not being home for a while, walking into a place like that, a bar or a coffee shop or something. And you get, and you used to have these conversations. Remember when so and so lived on the old road? And they're like, yeah. who is that? Was that Bob's kid or was that Phil's? And was Mandy still alive then? I don't know. It just has an authenticity to it that. You only capture if you understand the rhythms of the town. And right, so you, did. you
2: and I are watching two different films because mm-hmm. you know this environment and, and this culture, and I don't. But Wiseman seems to be giving us both what we need in order to appreciate this. Oh, yeah,
1: and, and, and I think to a certain extent I, what I appreciate about it is even though I grew up there, I never... Felt com- if I felt comfortable there, I'd probably still be there. Right. I was someone who needed to to leave, and I don't mean that as a value judgment necessarily. Just I couldn't be happy if I had stayed there. So I recognize like that community. At the same time, I recognize his view as an outsider because that's really more of what I am now mm-hmm. to that sort of community. Even though I that's where I grew up. So I I think for me, films like *Monrovia* um, hit home in a particular way because. I've seen both sides of it, if you will. It's actually not a bad intro to Wiseman, I would say, because of its short, relatively short running time and its political nature, I and think, And being new, it's
2: uh, one that's e- more easily available. Yeah.
0: I want to say that uh, to the extent that the documentaries can have this cinema verite feel, where you're presented as viewing things as they really are, and there isn't an obtrusive presence, it's worth noting that I have not seen a Wiseman film where I feel that he is an outsider commenting or being separate from the subjects he's viewing. Whether it's the most high-minded intellectual concepts being spoken of in At Berkeley or in Ex Libris or the much more down-home concerns from Belfast or Monrovia or the boxing gym from Austin, Texas. I never get the sense that he is looking downwards on what's on what's happening. With with the exception of Aspen. There he's definitely looking down on <laughs> them. And and it's part
2: of what gives him access to these places. If he was judgmental or closed minded, he wouldn't be able to ingratiate himself into these communities. He has to put himself in a position in all of these films where his camera becomes an unobtrusive part of the environment where people are comfortable being themselves and expressing themselves around his camera. And so I think his innate curiosity and his skill and just how he must be really good at dealing with people speaks to an artist that could find himself welcome in both uh, the Crazy Horse in, in Paris, to a a church in Monrovia, Indiana, to any of the hundreds of other locales, Wiseman has has found himself, and in what I think is really an extraordinary service to culture, has presented us this wide, wide variety of views of all different aspects of humanity.
1: Curiosity and empathy are qualities I strive for in my own life all the time mm-hmm. and the, Frederick Wiseman's films have that just uh, to the nth degree. One of my my favorite quotes about films is Roger Ebert's films are empathy generating machines. Yes. And there are few other directors where that is demonstrated more than Wiseman's.
0: And in a sense that a person can learn about art but then a person can learn about art appreciation, where you look at the elements of a work of art. I think one of the things where Wiseman is most triumphant is in art appreciation appreciation. In other words, just due to the vast range of his films, his topics, and how extensively he looks at it, I think one of the greatest benefits that Frederick Wiseman can do, and the greatest benefits that someone starting to look in on his work can get, is of the vastness and the complexity and the sheer number and amount of interesting things and ideas and conflicts and humanity that the world has to offer so on that note we hope that you guys enjoyed what we had to offer in our extensive yet way way too scant look at the films of Frederick Wiseman Peter, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, excursion on his works.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I, I really, uh, I love Wiseman, and I just, the opportunity to go back and revisit his films and discuss them with you guys is uh, uh, call anytime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, we will. And for you guys listening in, if you want to give us your thoughts on Frederick Wiseman or what are your favorite films of his or moments from his films, you can feel free to give us an email at directors club podcast at gmail.com the directors club is found in multiple places across the net from spotify at directors club podcast itunes at directors club podcast facebook directors club podcast twitter dc podcast and you can catch our episodes online at our website of directors club podcast.com thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the directors club